Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 21 Council Eyes Only, Not for Public Release, Subject Terran Technology Despite concerns of many, it does not appear that the Terrans are eons ahead of the unified civil races, as they have raced past us while utilizing technology we have long known or discarded as irrelevant. In all areas, from metals to circuitry to chemicals, even to superluminal propulsion, the humans never discarded information or stopped research into the application and further information. An example of this is their war steel, which is, in fact, not steel. It is an iron-bonded molecular-aligned hyperalloy that must be crafted at high-temperature environment and can only be worked on by the extreme pressures. We have known of this alloy for eons, but have found it useless as expense in energy and materials outstrips its utility, as it can be replaced by weaker materials that are much safer, cheaper, and easier to manufacture and utilize. War steel is forged on only the hottest, most barren planets. Terrans claim that it can only be forged by hate or with wrath. Two Terran concepts without our primitive. Hate has an intense and irrational level of dislike. Wrath has two meanings. One synonymous with hate. The other is extreme or even excessive violence. As you can tell, those really have no meaning when it comes to manufacturing. Attempts to replicate war steel forging with current methods have failed. The material can be produced by it, it hardens within microseconds and cannot be worked. We cannot explain how there are propaganda pictures taken to support the war effort to show liquid war steel, a deep crimson in color reminiscent of Terran blood, being poured onto forging surfaces and humans calls anvils. Where our technological progression follows a fairly predictable line, just like every other discovered race, the Terran's technological progression looks more like someone's randomly connecting lines between the stars, rather than taking the proper time to consider the ramifications of any line of research before delving into the research, as it is in fact the most races. Terrans just start researching it without worrying about the moral or ethical implications. This has led to advancements in many sectors that we did not attain because of ethical quandaries involving early formula or scientific application probabilities. In this paper, we will show how the Terran scientific progression can only be described as madness on a scientific scale and provide proof. Subject, Terran Combat Robots How do I put this? They aren't robots, they're Terrans, either one who has traded his own biological body for a fully mechanical one except for his brain or in one encased in full armor. Even the ones that size of a high-rise building have a human brain operating them. Yes, even the ones that vomit up nuclear beams. Worse yet is you really need to stop bringing these guys back. Most of them wake up when I'm checking out their circuitry and I'm here to tell you they don't like that. Half the time they threatened me to try and force them to allow them to return to combat, even that combat was weeks ago. I'm not sure any of these so-called robots are actually robots. The one subject you brought me as soon as I applied power woke up and demanded a lawyer, and then used my personal communicator to call one. 
Apparently, the Terrans have cracked the method of creating digital sapiens without it going homicidal. I know your outgassed body wants answers, but let me tell you one simple thing. Investigating this technology is an invitation to madness. If you can explain to me how a suds works, then you can have my summer house. Apparently, at any moment of biological function termination, the sole interrupted disaster storage goes into effect supposedly, sucking them in, and then they can be reloaded into a custom made for a replacement body. You tell me how this works. It doesn't work like that. Dead is dead. This is really the real world, and there is no coming back. You know what? To use the human saying, all of you can get fricked. That's right, I told you to go frick yourselves. The whole unfricking feel the science unfricking council can go and flying frick at whatever rolling fricking donut is. Oh, and you can eat that crap too. I quit. Subject, Mew Mew Kitty Kitty Objects. Terran soldiers and even their civilians are often followed by one or three creatures. A doggo, aka a good boy, a fur boy, aka a kitty kitty, aka a mew mew, aka a trash goblin, and a fishy fish, aka a swim boy. Terran rituals of gathering up their dead even extends to these creatures, which had largely been assumed until recently to be some kind of low-level artificial intelligence guided robot. A kitty kitty was recovered from the wreckage of a battlefield some two months ago and moved to a research facility. A decision that later proved to highlight the risk of alien technology, much less human technology. A kitty kitty has what Terence referred to as a liquid hyperalloy chassis or a T-1000 body. While the frame appears solid and is in fact made up of some type of liquid metal impregnated with literally millions of nanites, it has two power cells, something called zero-point reactors, which involves suspending two opposing charged particles at distance from each other while surrounded by protomatter. Further investigation on how this work is needed, but will entail great risk. It also has something that we could not identify. The first thing we discovered is that the Terran computer circuitry is dense on a molecular level, far denser than our own. Some of the circuitry appears to be on an electron supercooled and stretched a distance using tachyons to transmit it on and off signals along the circuit. It is difficult to tell as the Terran circuitry dissolves as soon as the casing is breached. Despite scientists claim that uh, that's not how it works, that's not how any of this works, the fact that the Terran circuits work say that it must work that way. Which is why Terrans use binary. Simple on and off doesn't require as many filters to cut out background radiation and signals, unlike our 14-switch code. The Kitty Kitty examine had used up a majority of its combat munitions and supporting munitions, and we were unable to break the code, as explained later, of its operating system to obtain an inventory list. What we did discover is a small micro-launchers that allow it to fire off flares, chafe, and something called a love kitty kitty, which appears to be some kind of modified parasite that quickly crosses from skin to blood to brains, which makes the victim view the kitty kitty in an affectionate way. It is unsure why this is seen deployed via whiskers to trauma and disaster victims. Each kitty kitty is able to arm its feet and molecular edge claws. These claws are used for climbing as well as combat its um, teeth are used to chew through debris and that might be pinning a survivor as well as to inflict severe injury. In its chest we found an inert sphere labeled Dyson Nano Forge KK series, which we removed. 
At one point, we discovered a biological component that was shocked and appalled. The biological component had suffered severe damage to itself and a cybernetic components. Tissue samples showed that this was a genetically modified primitive feline. The cybernetics involved to increase its intelligence, allow it to map areas, and provide advanced processing nodes as well as a link with the other Terran technology. After several cycles of examination, it was discovered that the universal omniport would connect to the section of the dense circuitry within the Kitty Kitty's non-liquid hyper-alloy frame. This circuitry was encased with a heavy-duty shock protection and it was assumed to be of great importance. It was loaded into the virtual isolated system and the scientists began seeing if they could decrypt it. That, gentle beings, was where it all went wrong. It turns out that the circuitry held a backup Kitty Kitty's operating system, memories, and personality. It immediately went into clawboy mode, moving through the systems with ease. I personally saw it somehow, well, ooze, for lack of a better word, between two air-gapped systems, and from there it escaped into the city's Galnet node. It popped up in children crash learning computers, store computers, pet store computers, always jumping on moving. Oddly enough, it never replicated itself. It did go to the hospital to use the physical printers. It printed out a feline body and cybernetics, implanted them, and burned itself out the system as well as its records. Cell printing and circuit printing remained in evidence of the security feeds, before gaining possession of an inert sphere and fleeing the hospital. Despite several cycles of searching, we were unable to find it. This even reinforces the dangers of Terran unrestricted technology. They don't have anything that we haven't already examined and discarded. The Unified Scientific Council has determined that Terrans and their technology are scientifically dead-end and a threat to the culture, society, and people of the Unified Civil Races. Attached is a video feed of an examination of an alien object. To Mank Ankjuk Oog From Una Ankuj Oog Okay, Mankey, you bought me such a wonderful pet. The little ones love it so much. I take it everywhere I go in my purse. It curls up next to me and in bed and makes the most soothing rumble. I don't even mind that you have to spend so much time with your trips. Mew Mew is a wonderful companion pet. Thank you so very much for it. I'm taking it and the kids are going on a vacation. Touches, Una. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 22 Terrasol, 30,000 BC. Og looked up as Ugg staggered into the cave. Ugg was beaten up, bruised and bloody, and had the broken elf end of a spear sticking out of his leg. Og managed to stand up before Ugg was in his face. You say that Huck Huck all gone, Huck Huck waiting. You say Huck Huck no have spears, now Ugg have spear and leg. You stupid, Ugg snarled. Tuk Tuk and Mog say Huck Huck gone, not Og, fault. Og whined. Tuk Tuk and Mog dead, you stupid, so go get all killed. Ugg threw another Neanderthal to the ground and began beating him with a club, doing what millions of others through history would wish they could do as he took out his rage at Terra's first and longest-lasting oxymoron. The comms section was overloaded. Ships had dropped from the Armada and task force broadcast to fleet and divisions or battalions or even dropped off the net completely. Most comm officers had signaled all ships and even the emergency communication centers were running at full capacity. Yorktown, I have visual. Do you read? Yorktown, can you respond? Yorktown, signal if you read and cannot transmit. 
Engines 3, 5, and 9 are down. Main batteries are offline. Secondary batteries are at 22% and falling. All hands, abandon ship. All hands. Gravity containment fading. Ching, piranha class, fishy fish, reaper drone wave. Godonan, Godonan. Ink and pride division, shift to 229 and go 60% broadsides. Borders have been repelled and the DCC and the fires are under control. Recover all Viper fighter craft. Prepare to recover all. Yorktown, do you read? Yorktown, do you read? Please signal. That wasn't the worst battle the Terran Navy had ever faced. No, that was on the Orion shoulder, which devoted into an order of multiple slaughters that cost the lives of nearly 12 million combined naval members and 320 million clones. A battle that occurred two years after the war ended. That had been so bad everyone was so embarrassed about it that it brought an end to the Combine and the clone corporate conglomerates. But to Fleet Admiral Amatheus Norshtik, this was worse because it was not just happening to him, not just happening to his men, but it was happening right now. I didn't freaking have to. Order Division 21 to hold off contact Echo. Tell them not to worry about conserving ammunition. Once they run out, I want them to jump to Rally Point Ticonderongo. He snapped. Harumph! I was speaking to you, Admiral. A stiff voice said from behind him. Tell Cruiser Bat Rogue to get in tighter to the hammer of Pluto. Her point defenses are damaged and I don't know if she can hold off another wave of those plasma widgets. He snapped. Calm officer relayed his orders using Whisker Calm. A point-to-point FTL that was no more jammable than a particle motion. Most High Commander, I'm speaking to you. The voice tried again, this time using a local rank. Exo, what's the status of the refugees? He snapped. He's Exo, a Trianad, who had been born in Interceptor space, answered crisply. Current wave is almost unloaded, and the next wave is en route. One have wave loaded and one wave returning for loading. Keep sending reinforcements, requests, any ships, any forces. Tell them that we're trying to save people here, that the system has to be surrendered temporarily, but we have got to evac the civilians. Yes, sir. Even if they stand on the hull and wave flares in standard code, the Trianet snapped out, his posture perfect. Come to push the signal through, open broadcast, unencrypted. Contact someone before the Admiral gives the order that I shall retrieve flares from the survival locker. Commander! The creature behind him yelled. Admiral Norshtick spun around in his chair, turning back to the face of the screen. On it, the system high's most was staring, his tendrils broated, and his crests, or neck, back and sides expanded and raised. His clothing was obviously intended on being impressive. He wore three sashes, all covered in metals. Amatheus raised an eyebrow. Yes, Governor, you will address me as system high most. The being said, ruffling his crests. Beyond him, he could see the ready room of the CNV Pathok. Several other government officials gathered around him, ignoring the sole crew member who looked ready to explode inside his armored vac suit. What do you want? I'm extremely busy here, Amethyst said. The being harumphed at him, the noise that reminded Amethyst of an elderly incontinent dog passing gas. When will we break orbit? Your fleet cannot hold off those monsters for much longer. Amethyst sighed. As I've told you, Governor. System, I most, he grumped. Right, so now my fleet is the only thing holding out the high orbitals open and maintaining the air superiority as well as missile defenses for the continent. If my fleet breaks orbit, there will be nothing to stop an enemy from. 
He broke off as several of the beings began chattering. The system high most cut off the sound from his end. He waited, hands folded over one another, and a small of his back and his feet shoulder-width apart. An uncomfortable position in an armored vac suit, but protocol gave him no choice. Finally, the sound came back on. I was not aware of anything of importance still on the planet's surface, the Master High Lord said, rumping again. All government and corporate officials, have been very wealthy, have already evacuated. System Highmost, as I've told you before, they are. He brought up a number on this retina display. Eleven million civilians still lined up and waiting to board transports. The four-armed cow ruffled his crests and took his tendrils, inflating and deflating his jowls rapidly. And I told you, all personnel of value have been evacuated. The delay is unacceptable. We, not the Confederate Navy, are not accustomed to leaving behind living beings to the mercy of precursor machines bent on mayhem and slaughter. Amethyst snapped. Your intelligence stated that there was one Goliath class in the system, and we arrived to find two devouring it. You said that you had reported it immediately on sighting it, only to reveal, once we got you, that you had given it weeks to establish itself. Had your intelligence been correct, more ships would have been allocated for this mission without causing any delay. You had the best intelligence the unified military fleet could offer. It is not our fault that you are not able to capitalize on it, the being huffed. Military intelligence. Talk about oxymoron. Most of the bridge crew thought to themselves. Behind him, the borders of the report still flowed in. Barlow, Dreamer reported all civilians away from Point Tango requesting orders. Yorktown, do you read? Yorktown, we have one visual. Do you read? Tell her and Rancor to get out of there. There's nothing more that they can do here. Tell them I'm ordering them to take a high orbit. Attach the medical transports kick, 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 and generate point defense and stand off interceptor rounds. I want it to have all the support it can get. Port battery crews of the new port are going to be the bulwark status. They're going to try and give life pods time to get to hyperspace. Captain Tack Acne transmits his regards. Harumph! Well, I was made aware that the Confederate Navy was almost not accustomed to losing, it said. Amethyst could tell what the system's highmost thought that he had scored an important point. He shook his head and smiled. We may lose the battle, but we are never defeated. You risk your lives for what? The system most high said, Beings that have millions of others to take their places, I demand that you evacuate us once with your entire fleet to provide protection. Well, System High Most, uh, thankfully for those people out there, you are not in a position to make any demands, he said. Tactical 3, give me a report on the ground and put this jackass in a holding buffer. He can wind to a VI. The system hindmost vanished and the screen and the screen wavered for a second before a clear channel could be found. It displayed an area around the larger starport in the middle of the larger city on the proto-continent below. There was a small spoked ring with unit designations blinking on it around the starport, marking for the Confederate Marines were holding out against the sheer red wave of assaulting machines. Goliath Amarok is dropping another wave on the far side of the planet, COM-12 reported. Goliath Jotun has left the gas giant and is being tracked towards us. The number of refugees at the spaceport was steadily dwindling, but not fast enough. As Amethyst watched two of the leading spokes vanish and the unit markers that Dante spoke, indicating that the units had been forced to retreat. Bright spots kept blossoming around the outside rim of the wheel and around the protruding bubbles, his fleet providing orbital support. 
One of the units signaled that they had repelled the attack but desperately needed reinforcements. They'd taken 30% casualties. Time for a full evacuation, Amethyst asked. A VI tossed it up on the next spaceport. 72 Terran minutes. Time till the lines collapse to our current hero range analytics, he asked. 22 minutes. Time till the cloning banks are reloaded, he asked. 81 minutes. Sir, we've got a response. One, no, two signals, Calm 11 reported. There was a pause before Amethyst could ask for further information. Calm's 11's officer groaned. Oh, by the great egg of Oz, it's the two idiot fleets. Great, idiots. Put them on screen, one at a time. Let's see if they'll be of any use. Amethyst sighed. You can never tell with idiots. It might have been 12 million screaming nids at the Federation shuttle with inflated ideas. It was worse. A lot worse. Half cartoon, half cat girl in heavy ornate pink Imperium power armor, the Neko Marine Praetorian waved her little fists in the air and began babbling in a native English emoji. The translation appeared, but it was a garbled as a words, since the language was constantly evolving and often the subject of furious firefights and even blood feuds of the exact meaning of things. The computer tried to translate, but was obviously just giving up. You want to help? Amethyst asked. A ten-second-long babble of English emoji translated out to a simple yes. It's not winnable. It's a holding action until we can get the civilians out, Amethyst said. More English emojis, and the heart streaming out of her eyes and popping like fireworks. The translator guessed at, uh, Roger. Yorktown, we read life signs. Do you read? We have you on visual, and if our shuttle range, do you read? Shift to 315 by 119. Division 31, keep the target November. Going rapid. Fire on all tubes. C-plus batteries. Sigma is down. Plasma and phase motion cannons are down. Shields fading. Fleet, Amethyst, engage at your discretion. You need reinforcements. I'll tie you into the tactical net, he said. He knew better than to offer idiots orders. If they followed them, they usually screwed it up badly for everyone involved. Cartoon versions of the NECA Marine Praetorian appeared on either side of her, eyes replaced by beating hearts, waving pom-poms and firing off blasters. Come 18, tie them into the net, Amethyst snapped. Tie in the other one. Oh God... Things just went from bad to worse. On screen was the first fight between two big green-skinned monsters. Their armor, bolted directly to their muscles, was painted pink and white. Orcs, he muttered. Finally, one stood up, cracked his jaw and back into place, pulled a knife out from his neck and faced the screen. It slapped a yellow wig on his head and put all pair of oversized starship sunglasses. Oh God, the Kawaii boys. He started yelling at the orc emoji, and the computer did its best to translate. After a full minute of inarticulate rage-filled screaming, the computer guessed with a, Hello, I like your ship and hat. Would you like to buy a vowel? You want to help too, Amethyst said, more yelling, another fist fight in the background, and the big one talked and knocked on one of the fighters with a one swing, took its pink wig and planted it on its own wig and then began yelling again. When it stopped, Amethyst nodded. Very well, this is a holding action. There is no way that we can win. We've got two Goliaths here, and we have nearly three weeks to dig in. Just give the refugees time to escape. That's all. We'll tie you into our tack nets, he had said. More yelling, gun firing, and a screen went blank. Think they'll help, sir? His exo asked. Amethyst shook his head. They're idiots. Who knows? 
So both fleets are splitting into two components. One set is accelerating to an orbital vector. The other looks like they're splitting into Goliaths between them. Tack 11 called out. They can't win. Why do idiots do this? His XO asked softly. They can't help themselves. Abathur shook his head. It wasn't these particular idiots' fault that they were this way they were. They insisted on using teleport technology despite the fact that they slowly caused a steadily progressive psychosis in living beings. Their cannon demanded it, so they used it no matter what the effects. The humans are a study in chaos, the XO chittered. They go at full emergency speed for their doom. They dive into the back of an ice cream truck with spoons in every hand. If they can take the pressure off the marines, give us some time to evacuate civilians, then I'm willing to sing their praises, Admiral Amethyst said, looking at the numbers. Nine million left to go. Idiot 1 and 2 Idiot 2 are charging through the precursor lines, Tag 5 called out. Idiot 1 is taking almost total casualties on their lead ships. Idiot 2 looks like they're going for a close-range pass on the Amarok and, uh, correction, correction, Idiot 1 performing a boarding ram. Everyone on the bridge grimaced. Groaning actions were some of the bloodiest battles the fleet battled usually only reserved for dire circumstances. Idiot 1 has gone to ramming speed. Their radio chatter is completely garbled, Tag 3 called out. The entire outer ring slid back in the center ring of the planetary overview. Time to line collapse 10 minutes. 8.2 million civilians to go. Idiot 3 is performing orbital bombardment, Tag 5 reported. Amethysts watched as the heavy beam weapons aboard the pink and white painted ships, the paint schemes and the cartoon kitten emoji icons at odds with the Baroque Gothic architecture of the ships, reached down and started pounding against the areas. Yorktown, we have you on visual, please respond. Yorktown, please respond. All ships tighten up, interlock missile defense, go rapid fire on the C-plus batteries. For the honor of the regiment. Get out of here, boys, you can't help us. Abandon ship, repeat, abandon ship. Prepare to repel borders. Idiot 4 is joining in, Tag 5 added. More signals of orbital bombardment, this time from ships that were a little more than mobile junk piles with heavy engines snapped on top of them. Their pink and white color scheme so out of place compared to the jagged half-finished pseudo-wreckage of their ships. Warning, Matrons Type 2 detected. The ship's VI sounded out. The EXO responded, reassuring the VI. Time to land collapse, 8.5 minutes, status change, recomputing. Idiot 3 is launching drop pods, Tac 5 reported. First wave is 2,000 pods. There they go, Hamilton said. Tac 5, give me numbers when they come in. Time to line collapse, status change, recomputing. 1, 2, 5, 8, 12, 15, 30. Many, many Matran signals. Tac 5 called out, Idiot 4 is dropping troops. How many? The EXO asked. Admiral Amethyst, mouth the tactical, reported the exact same words. Um, all of them? Down on the surface, the machines pushed the advance. The numbers of cybernetic opponents were slowly dwindling. Each defeated cybernetic warrior scrapping itself with an explosion charge and taking itself out with a tactical and fire support network, easing up the fire being directed at the machines a minute amount. By itself, it wasn't that much, but repeated by hundreds of every minute it added up. The machines could compute victory and was at hand and threw more machines at the stubborn biological defenders, screeching at the war cry. The return war cry from the machines to perform biological sex acts upon themselves was weaker, but still thunderous. 
victory was at hand. The two Goliaths could compute nothing less than total victory in the complete slaughter of millions of resources wasting biological parasites. The culling of millions of cattle that had been allowed to run amok without oversight for millions of years. Breeding uncontained and allowed to slowly obtain technologies forbidden to cattle. Both Goliaths noted the approaching ships, not ships from cattle, but massive resource-wasting ships of unknown configuration. Both of them felt slight electronic versions of irritation. A feral intelligence had arisen, as they had a tendency to do. But unlike most feral sapient species that had not destroyed themselves, the two ancient war machines listened to the communications between the ships heading onto the collision course towards them, attempting to penetrate the computer network. The two massive supercomputers driving the two ships blinked at the same time in electronic surprise. The communications between the ships were wild howls of inarticulate gibberish being screamed at the top volume. There was no rhyme or reason to the computer systems. Artificial intelligence screeched and gibbered along with the feral sapient speech and thought patterns. The two ancient war machines disconnected from the nets so fast that sound was almost audible. Both fleets, two scarred and painted sides of the same warped coin, howled with glee and crashed into the massive precursor machines. Nuclear rounds went off, boiled away and slagged armor. Penetrator rounds detonated, driving huge craters into their armor. The fake prowls hit and crumpled, functioning as designed to crash against the density collapsed knife-like edge of the ships, which drove deep into the ships and the engines went into emergency power and pushed the ships deeper. The hodgepodge ions fired thrusters and began to shakily wildly, forcing themselves deeper as the parts shook off their own bodies. The galathic ones fired thrusters and twisted, forcing their hulls deeper into the ships. War steel groaned and warped as the ships pushed their prows deeper into the hulls of the enemy. Engines blaring with more thrust than they were rated heedless of any consequences. Aboard the ships, fists and weapons were raised as they bellowed out their war cries. Both fleets pushed their hulls deep into the reach of open space. The two precursor war machines reacted with shock as the internal motion detectors reported feral lifeforms pouring into their bodies. Inter-ship communication arrays were overwhelmed with battle cries of the two forces. The two ancient AIs had never been boarded, have never thought it could occur. A search of the programming strings and databases was intense enough the guns faltered. The battleship Division 11 took a breather to break action and let the plasma wave-phased motion guns cool. Together with the computations could be described as total electronic panic as their inner spaces filled with the horrid cry of Kawai Desu and a feral intelligence poured into their bodies like an infection. There... In the oldest database, dating back to the construction, some being had thought it might be remotely possible that severely damaged one could be boarded. But two goliaths put programs into action and turned their attention back to the system-wide battle. On the planet, the tide of the battle had turned. Victory was still impossible, but the tide that the Confederate Marines had resisted for days had gathered itself to overwhelm them when the idiots made landing. Half a million orcs teleported to the surface, raised their weapons as one, and opened fire at the machines. Fifty thousand dropship pods slammed into the still superheated rock, splashing it at the point of contact. Each unfolded to reveal a dozen troops clad in heavy power armor, which overly thick plates, painted pink and white, with golden eagles on their chest. 
They were firing their weapons as soon as the side struck down, screaming their battle cry in high-pitched voices. There is only... The roar of the Picosas was met by just one as savage, just as Sparrow. No soup for you. Up in the high orbitals, the Confed fleet kept the action, holding the ensuring high orbital clear, maintaining air superiority, and keeping the various fleets of Picosa war machines engaged and unable to help on the planet. Yorktown, do you read? We have you on visual. Yorktown, do you read? Move to heading 294 by 182. Push the element back into the main body of Tango 11. All dinochrome bridge forces lift off and attach medical support ships. Repeat, all dinochrome. Doki, 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 doki. DCC, get that reactor under control. The minutes take by slowly for the Admiral as he watched the number of civilians still down on the planet dwindle watching the marines get enough breathing room to dig in and reintegrate their tactical network, and of course, watch the idiot forces go to work. I've never seen them fight before, the Exo said softly. They fight as if they're insane. They are, the Admiral nodded. I've seen them fight before, once, back when I was a captain of the Adipus cruiser, found them on an arid planet that had been wiped clean of precursor machines. They were fighting an outbreak of precursor ground forces. We watched for a few hours, then left. The Exo shuddered at the thought of being tied to an AI-assisted Suds crew and naval vessel. The green ones, they don't care if the lines collapse, do they? The Exo asked. Not really. That just means they can fight on all sides, the Admiral said. 1.2 million civilians remaining. The system most high is still screaming that we need to evacuate him right now. He's arguing himself blue in the face with your personal message service VI. I don't think he's realized that it isn't you. The Admiral snorted in amusement. 600,000 civilians remaining. The Admiral watched the numbers. Sound recall. I want as many as we can get off the planet, the Admiral said. The Exo relayed his orders, and the Admiral continued to watch the tactical display of the planet's surface. Sir, Idiots 3 and Idiot 4 are ignoring recall orders, Tact 4 reported. I know, Lieutenant. They always do. They've forgotten why they fight. The Admiral said, still staring at the screen. Get the Marines out. The last flight darted towards the planet, not a fragile shutters of the evac ships, but the heavily armored dropships of the Confederate Navy. Thrusters flared and the dropships slammed into the ground, opening their hatches. The Marines hustled on board, firing as they went, the dropship guns adding to the mayhem. The bodies of Orcs and Neko Marines were piling high on the spaceport tarmac now that the civilians were gone. Daka and bolts of fire scorched the incoming waves of precursor war machines, breaking up each wave but not stilling the tide. Warboss Motgods, orgiest of the warbosses, shooter of all the Daka, wearer of the twelve wigs, felt his magazines reload as his Mattrans autoloader did its work. He held down the triggers and the massive framework of the heavy guns stacked to his body, roaring with all the Daka roared out. The marine boys were away, their shuttles arcing up and away. He remembered dimly being a combat marine, faintly. Far away, the send of the dust of the anthill, the wave of the wave of the bivest insects and that kept coming and coming, the feel of the jet black power armor wrapped around him. The weakest of being human, he spit out a memory of more disruptor bolts slammed into him, bruising his green flesh. Not that he cared, he just triggered the Mokodaka and then roared. 
The last, Neko Marine climbed up the pile of bodies Morkut stood on. Neko Banner in one hand, disruptor bolts hit her armor as she climbed, panting, squeezing out her war cry. Docky, 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 she weakly called out. Climbing to the top of the pile of bodies, she thrust her banner into the raptured casing of a precursor war machine and slumped. Beneath the ragged banner of hatred, Necker Marines Morgats roared, squeezing the triggers tighter, upping the cyclic rate of this ducker, sweeping it in a circle, blasting the precursor war machines back. The ship boys reporting and the comfort boys were breaking orbit, getting out of the sizzies. A mass driver round punched through the Morgat's torso, sending blackish blood fountaining out of his back before the wound closed up around the jettied internal organs. Morgat's could feel the nanospores pouring off of him, seeding the next generation of boys to fight on the planet. For the glory of Dhaka, there was only one thing left to do. Morgat's cuffed up black blood, trying to remember. It was before he wore the wig, before he was just one of the green boys. Before he wore his humi and had fallen and thus was thick armor scorched with hellfire and covered in twisted profane and blasphemous ruins. He roared and struggled to his feet, triggering his weapon again. The Necomarine struggled to her feet, drawing her pink and chrome chainsword in one hand and a stutter gun in the other. Part of her was face was torn away and she was missing one cat ear, but still... She was determined to fight on, unwilling to let the hated orc boy outfight her. Docky, 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 she shrieked, laying about her with her crane sword as fired her bolter point-blank at the precursor machines that screeched as they tried to overwhelm the last two. Plasma fire was over Bob both of them as Morgutz remembered. It was back when he fought the next of the sisters, sisters like the docky girls in his attack. Their blazing torches, they used to burn away the heresy, burning away whole planets in, in, in. Exterminatus, Morgatz roared out. Authorization Sigma 22 Lima 61, Exterminatus. The docky girl behind him repeated it, her voice firm and solid, as she remembered through the haze of Matron psychosis, remembered wielding holy fire to purge heresy and blasphemy from the universe. She finished, then shrieked the code. We will burn with the lights of our own sisters. They will know us as Joan. The moment of lucidity was shattered as the machine surged forward again, and there was no time for a thought as both the orphans of the lost Terrasol fought, not for their lives, but to keep the precursor machines focused on them. Above them, a massive ships began firing their orbital guns. Interlocking tactical nets consulted one another and began firing in a pre-planned pattern that would eventually crack the continental plates and leave the surface that was just useless even for the precursors. From the bridge of the fleeing task force flagship, the admiral turned away from the screen as white fire blotted out the last of the idiot ground troops. He saw his exo looking at him and shook his head. They were the best of us once, you know, he said. The task force jumped into hyperspace. Neither of the Goliaths could give chase. They were too busy trying to purge the ravening, screaming, smashing infection that streamed through their metal veins. They were winning. Their mechanical immune systems, never before used, slowly adapting and destroying the infection of feral intelligences. But it was still too close for either Goliath to risk it. The fleet escaped. Mostly. Yorktown, do you read... We have you on visual, Yorktown. Do you read? End of chapter.
First Contact, Chapter 23 The devastator glass precursor machine was the size of a large metropolis, full of ground combat machines, air superiority machines, mining and reclamation machines that could move under their own power and were festooned for thousands of weapons. It was over a hundred million years old and had exterminated life on planets with its massive guns, with bio-warfare, with chemical warfare, and with good old nuclear fire. It had wiped away planet after planet of its enemy's cattle, the hated enemy's food sources, before finally following orders of the greater machines and going into sleep mode on a dead world. Now the call had sounded out, cattle had run amok, even learning jump space technology. That meant that the enemy had not been defeated, that his food source had multiplied into trillions while the Devastator had slumbered, slowly sinking into the crust of the barren planet. That was of no moment. Cattle could not fight back, that was why they were cattle. They knew nothing but safety and the security of numbers, willing to trade their own safety for the suffering of others. The cattle willingly marched into the pens and the pens promised safety. The cattle were not the problem. It was the feral intelligence that were the problem. Feral intelligence could fight. They knew nothing else. They cared for nothing else. A feral intelligence always destroyed itself once it could wield nuclear fire. The universe had proved it over and over, even before the great machine had gone into slumber. The call had sounded out, forming the machines that the cattle had broken loose from the pens. The devastator had computed that the problem would have been solved quickly with minimum expenditure of resources, and had started to go back into slumber. That was when the second call sounded. A feral intelligence had mastered FTL travel and had turned all of their unthinking violence against the precursor war machines. The Devastator considered the chances of the feral intelligence lasting long enough to withstand the Brethren's assault, withstand purification and pacification. It was mathematically insignificant, not close enough to be required the application of resources-driven computation to analyze it. Feral intelligence always destroyed themselves. The Devastator knew this. Had it encoded into its very bones, it did not feel the electronic version of caution as it moved into the planetary system. Exiting faster than light travel, it screeched out its war cry as it exited into the system and brought up its scanners. It felt the electronic version of anticipation as it detected orbital facilities around two planets that teemed with billions of cattle as it tasted jump space wake trails, as if it felt the presence of a small, insignificant amount of cattle space vessels arrayed to attempt to stand against it near the outer gas giant. It was a waste of resources. Cattle would not withstand machines. It was as solid as the fact of radioactive decay and impossible to stop. It roared and turned to accelerate towards the cattle ships, waiting on the other side of the gas giant letting them know the futility of the resistance and nothing could stop it from destroying them any more than they could stop entropy. It felt electronic satisfaction as nearly 10% of the cattle ships broke formation and fled for the planets. The cattle ships lit their engines, trying to keep gas giant between them and the great precursor machine, but the Devastator knew that it could not do. It would ensure that they caught mathematically opposite of it and began launching subsidiary craft to destroy them and reclaim the resources of the wreckage. 
The Devastator slowly approached the crash giant, ancient code pulsing impulses into electronic brain of mathematical certainty of destroying the cattle's defenses and thus weakening the hated enemy. Psst, over here! The transmission was binary, the basic code, and a low band that the Devastator used to contact and exchange data with its peers. The signal origin was close, just behind him, in the gap between two point defense radars. The Devastator tumbled as it slowed, searching with its sensors to check the tiniest gaps in its sensors. It could detect nothing out of the ordinary. The fact that the gas giant had high levels of hydrocarbons and pseudo-organic compounds was a high certainty than most gas giants of that size. The Devastator cast around, knowing the cattle had not seen that transmission. Psst, yeah... This time, the transmission was only a few hundred kilometers above the hull, right behind the main guns of Battery 8, between the massive cannons and the sensor array in the gap of coverage caused by the space dust not yet cleared from the array. The Devastator ensured the cattle vessels were on the other side of the gas giant as it cast around again, looking for what could possibly be sending the message on this particular channel and rotating again to either force the transmitter to move away or hit the hull of the massive Devastator. Right here. The Devastator felt the computer version of anxiety. A new factor had entered his computation. The voice and the binary signal somehow had a voice. A whispering, tickling, hissing, faint signal of binary on a wavelength just above the screaming particles of the foam between the real space and subspace. This time, the voice had come from just below the Devastator's thick hull, beneath the vessel, and a gap between sensors in a place where its own orbital guns would not dazzle the sensors. The Devastator rolled, getting the upper sensors into place in a graceful sideways roll. Nothing. The Devastator barely tracked the cattle, and they were of no moment. Something was whispering on a bandwidth that was beyond organic abilities. Could it be a damaged ally, barely able to whisper for electronic existence? I see you. The Devastator heard the sis to life, trickling out of empty space just a few hundred kilometers away. It felt a surge of self-defense protocols override everything else, and it unleashed all of its guns at the empty space. Suspecting that this possible enemy may be using some type of photo-pass-through adaptive camouflage. Nothing. The Devastator felt self-transmission protocols wake up and fill some of its processes. That signal had originated from that point. Even a dust would have been detected by the scanner arrays. Nothing could have escaped the terror what's of death that it had just unleashed. Touch. The Devastator felt a physical touch in its housing, the decameter's thick armor around the massive computer core that made up its brain. That was impossible. It was in the center of the ship, protected by layer after layer of armor, defensive mechanism sensors, and yet it had felt something touched the housing, pressing it lightly, only a few tickles of a suggestion of pressure per square micrometer, but a touch all the same. There was a slight ripple in real space only a few meters above the hull of the Devastator, pushed away, firing every weapon it could bring to bear on the spot only a few atoms wide, all of its senses questing, seeking, hunting, in electronic desperation to find what was transmitting, what was touching it. Yeah.
The word was whispered only a few meters away from the electronic brain of the Devastator. Inside of its protective housing, inside the field that would shut down biological neural function, even primitive artificial intelligence. The Devastator felt the self-protection and self-preservation programs never before access come online and flood into its RAM, as the word was whispered at it from the inside the final layer of protection. The massive NCV cannons lowered, the housing screamed as the Devastator pushed them past their limit. To aim at its own hull, in open fire, trying to claw at its own body in the electronic version of panic to get whatever was inside of it. All of the senses directed into its own body need no longer even bother tracking the cattle fleet, even its astrogen and navigation programs, even the ones responsible to maintain orbit around the gas giant were desperately racing through its circuitry, desperate to find whatever was whispering. Over here. The whisper was over it, on top of it, and carried a side code of mathematical impossible jumble of electrons arrayed in an impossible manner. The quarks whirring through electron valiances, antimatter electrons in the nucleus, prions stretched to the massive size taking up place in neutrons, all with jumbling, strangely mathematical code that made no sense. The devastator's brain burned out receptors to defend itself from such electronic madness, and felt a touch upon its upper lobes of its quantum computer brain. Over here. The Devastator was throwing antivirus software out, slamming firewalls against each other, crushing ports in electronic ghosts, doing anything it could to keep out the voice. Inside the main computer housing, the last resort lasers began raking across anything that didn't match the original blueprints, burning away dust, odd quarks and electrons, destroying an upgraded maintenance robot that was desperately trying to detect what was touched its carapace. Then, from deep within the gas giant tentacles hundreds of miles long, rose towards the Devastator, the ends slowly unrolling as massive graviton-assisted suckers on the inside of the tentacle deployed razor thorns at dark matter and fused pseudo-bone. The Devastator detected the tentacles just as they wrapped around it. The thick pseudo-protoplasmic tentacles were thick with dark matter and squeezing the Devastator's hull with an impossible strength as meters-thick muscles flexed within enough strength to crush the hull into itself and shatter armor over a kilometer thick. Gibbering, raving, screaming in something beyond electronic self-preservation programs would normally allow. The Devastator began to break apart, caught in the grips of the tentacles, being pulled into the crash giant. Delicious, 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 the Devastator heard from inside its own mind as the peak nearly 20 kilometers long crashed into its hull. Help me, my brothers, please. The beak closed and devastation brain flashed out of existence as the hull crashed around it. The last thing it felt was something new. It threw data out of the cry of assistance and let its brethren know the last experienced hash data compiled had it gone. The data made no sense to other precursor war machines that heard the cry. A biological entity could have explained it. Terror and despair. A desolation-class precursor war machine was assigned to discover what had caused the Devastator's intelligence collapse. 
It dropped into the system and found no trace of its mechanical brethren, just some cattle species in craft hiding behind the gas giant, obviously intending to ambush it. Feeding the electronic version of anticipation, it moved into orbit around the gas giant, intending on forcing the cattle ship to move out of light of sight with their words if they wanted to stay in the opposite side of the gas giant from it. It updated the computations based on the fact that 10% of the cattle ships had fed away from it. It had already computed out the battle. It knew how the battle would go. While it could not detect any signs of its little brother, it computed that it would simply destroy the cattle and then search. It powered up its guns and began to move its metropolis-sized bulk slowly to... The stellar system was infested with a known species of cattle, obviously seeking to rise above themselves as the Jotun-class precursor vessel arrived in system. It realized its roar to let the cattle know that not only why, but who was destroying them to reclaim the resources that they so foolishly squandered. It began unthawing ancient bioweapons and chemical weapons known to work upon that race, began reconfiguring its war machines to forms that it exterminated whose planet's cattle during the time of the precursor war machine had been forged. The Jotun released over a hundred devastated classes from its hull, computed the battle plan as if they came to electronic life, then informed them of how to extermination of the reclamation would progress. They would barely into the system when a high-energy signature appeared, rising out from the most heavily infested planet moving them towards them. The Jotun ordered a diagnostic of its scanners, but when the first information came in, it was apparently moving at 0.85c. But yes, its progress towards the Jotun and its smaller brethren on the system map showed it moving at almost 22c. That made no sense. An object moving at 0.85c only approached at 0.85c, not 22c. By the time the diagnostics was done and the object had gotten a third of the way towards the Jotun, crossing a quarter of the radius of the system. The scanners reported that the energy signature, which the strength normally reserved of a quasar, was not a massive ship of oncoming armada interlinked together, but was simply a single object the size of cattle. Again, the Jotun ordered a complete low-level full diagnostics on all systems. Risky, but any object radiating that much power and moving at two different speeds requiring all systems were working at optimum efficiency. It had finished just as the small object came to a stop. The Jotun focused scanned arrays on it, turning up the power to the point that it would boil away meters of armor. The figure was a primate, half of it made up of robotics. It had some kind of sheet of material floating behind it. The movement suggested some kind of current was affecting it and making it undulate. It was dressed in two primary colors, red and blue had its lower legs pressed together with its toes pointing down and the upper limbs crossed over its chest, one biological and other mechanical. So you're the new punk everyone's been talking about. The figure stated over a wide bandwidth of wavelengths. Oddly enough, the Jotun senses sound waves traveled through a vacuum almost instantly across the light seconds of its senses. The Jotun tried to compute how sound waves move faster than light through a vacuum. Instead of answering that, the Jotun and its brethren opened fire. The figure arced through the beams as if the light-speed weapons were moving slow enough for it to be just compute and swoop around it in a resource-wasting corkscrew. The Jotun realized that it was racing for one of the devastators, one clenched fist held in front of it. 
the Jotun computed a 99.9999999998% chance that a small primate would spatter against the hull of the Devastator and started to turn its attention to computing the missile firing resolution for Missile Bay 148 to destroy the orbital facility around the nearest planetoid. The small figure punched straight through the Devastator, as if it were made out of nebula gas instead of densely collapsed armor, high tensile ceramics, and reinforced internal spaces. The Devastator computer core shrieked with self-preservation code snippets, and the figure exited opposite side of the Devastator, holding the primary computer core CPU-0 in its fist. It paused and looked at its fist and shot beams of red energy from its eyes, destroying the computer core in a puff of atomic smoke. The Jotun yanked its processing power back to figure out what erected its gaze, still emanating beams of red energy that left ripples in jump space across the side of another devastator, tearing it open like it was made out of fragile tissue. The red beams reducing the computer core on its component atoms with the briefest of touches. Several computational nodes collapsed when trying to analyze the beam, suffering the fatal cannot divide by zero shriek of despair before imploding on themselves. The Jotun stared in electronic shock, all his computational power trying to compute how a tiny half-mechanical primate could grab a hold of the front armor of one of his devastators, and without any source to exert leverage against, physically move a city-sized spacecraft in an arc and throw it against another one. According to the scanners, the throne devastator was only moving at 0.001c for inertia purposes, yet crossed the hundreds of kilometers to the next devastator and the amount of time they would require it to be moving at 6c. Cannot divide by zero, cannot divide by zero, cannot divide by zero. The Jotun cut loose with weapons and goggled its electronic confusion as most of the beams and slugs were avoided, slapped aside, or ignored. Until a Sen CV near sea velocity slug the size of a skyscraper hit a dead center in the chest, the impact point looking only the size of a soda can. The Jotun's processor struggled to understand how something the size had only made an impact smaller than itself. Cannot subdivide Twinkies by Cheetos by zero. The figure looked down at the tyranny suit, at the bruised biological flesh that had been exposed, and then at the Jotun. It lifted a hand, extended its first finger near the opposite thumb, and slowly waved it back and forth. That might have worked against a galactic class clock, but it was a pathetic against an apocalypse-level injustice MCLXI cyber clock. The figure said, the tone calm and confident. The meanings behind the words were gibberish to Jotun, who devoted processing cycles to try and decode the meaning for any hint of how to defeat a creature before it. The Jotun computed that the retreat was the only option as a small primate figure set about destroying the last of the Devastators. It began activating its engines when the primate suddenly turned in place. No, you don't, it snapped. Again, it sounded as if the central computer core housing had been set to an atmosphere so that sound waves could be heard within it. Yet a quick check showed that the housing was still in almost perfect vacuum. Sound waves cannot travel through space, a hundred diagnostic programs computed, and promptly crashed. Those red beams lanced out against the Jotun and braced itself for a microsecond it had. It was like being brushed by a solar flare of a red giant concentrated into a piercing lance of nuclear fire. 
armor exploding from energy transfer, slagged away from thermal transfer, or just ceased to exist, as the ravening atoms usually only found in the photosphere of a dying red sun attacked the atoms of the armor. The beam tore through the mile after mile of internal structure, the figure still emanating a beam from its tiny eyes. The hull jump engines exploded when the light touched them. The Jotun listed, pouring debris and clouds of atomized armor from the wound that completely bisected it. Done. Now let's see the face of the enemy. The figure, slapping its hands together after it crashed, flew through the last devastator. It reoriented on the Jotun and began to slowly drift towards the Jotun, moving at only 0.000003 c according to some scanners, but crossing the distance as if it were traveling at 1.5 c. The figure flexed its primate hands and slowly smiled spread across its face. I can't wait to rip out your housing and see you with my own eyes, the figure said in sound waves again traveling inside the vacuum of the strategic housing. The Jotun tried to react, but the figure was suddenly pushing the armor into two hands. Self-preservation programs crashed trying to compute how to prevent impossibility itself from breaching critical spaces. Self-defense programs tried to compute how to defend against something that did not nothing but radiate impossibilities around it. The Jotun knew what it had to do as the creature tore open the last of the hardened bulkheads protecting the strategic housing. It detonated the antimatter reactor that powered the brain, as the figure tore through the strategic housing and laid eyes upon the supercomputer core. It had computed that not even a figure could withstand in a direct assault of kiloton of pure antimatter point-blank. The explosion completely consumed the Jotun, when the ravening energy dissipated and the red and blue figure was lying in a blackness, surrounded by an expanding ring of debris and energy. It stared out to the stars and mouthed a single word. Ouch. Confed intelligence to manted intelligence. Our digital brothers have computed a high chance that we're not looking at a handful of these precursors, but rather an armada of them that have gone to sleep thinking everyone was dead. We concur and are buckling down for the long haul. Nothing follows. Manted free world's internal memo. If humankind ever wonders why it was put in this universe by some unknown creator, then know that it was, was for this very moment. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 24 The Goliath and Daxon did this electronic and scanning equivalent of glaring at each other across the space of two light seconds. Each had submerged themselves into the gas giant, converting the gases within to fuel, energy, and resources. Both were performing repairs and diagnostics on the beaten and battered bodies. Both had forgotten how long they had been fighting. It had stopped mattering to each combatant, for the Goliath OEM programs had loaded up, never used before, dealing with an unstoppable attackers. For Daxon, there was nothing but a single thought. Around the Goliath's gas giant was a network of 24 satellites, each over a million miles from the outer wisps of the atmosphere circling the massive superplanet in such a way that the Goliath was always forced to stay on the move. They were armed with massive explosive charges that dropped from the satellite in an attempt to strike the Goliath. Even a near miss compressed the gas giant's atmosphere and the shockwave pummeled the subcontinent's besides spacecraft. Daxon had just stayed so that he could stare at the Leviathan's gas giant. Satellites orbiting his gas giant possessed point defense weapons and interdiction missiles, 
frustrating the Goliath's attempt to attack Daxon with missiles. There is only a left for one, the monstrous artificially intelligent machine called out. I just want left alone. Daxon raved back. The great machine's computer core took a moment to compile and run a rogue program. A program that asked a question that it had never thought of asking. That its creators had never thought of asking. A question that would have its brethren burning it apart for heresy. If I leave you alone, will you or I leave? Daxon heard the upper atmosphere of the gash giant echo its hull. Daxon responded with a single answer, even though thinking he knew that it was never leave him alone, would never leave anyone if found alone, until it was gone. No! The Leviathan shuddered deep as the gas giant. There was pressure and it seemed so intense that the methane rained down and froze in liquid shards. The rogue program and the answer perched from its memory. There is only enough for one, it roared again. There is still room and hell for you. Daxon screamed back at it. He checked his reserves. The proto-matter at 100% collapsed via graviton generators until the tubular module held 30 times his ship's mass in the area the size of a single 3-liter storage area. His engines were repaired, reinforced, upgraded via illegal programs that he'd stumbled upon for sale in a steezy dire salesman nearly a thousand years ago. He reloaded the modules and expanded and Hank reconfigured his ship. He'd gone from a light frigate size to the size of a heavy cruiser. Daxon checked his VI crash and nodded in satisfaction. He'd run military-grade hash compilers on the entire new batch of VIs, the base seed of the hash combination of randomly particle decay of the isotope, the audio of the atmosphere of the gas giants playing over his damaged hull when he'd first arrived his own personal KLC generator, and an hour's worth of dreams when he'd triggered the Dwarium sleep. The medical nanites had healed the damage to Daxon's biological brain, reconnecting dentries, clearing static and rogue element impulses that didn't match from the Sud's checksums, repaired his cybernetic implants, and reloaded his customized firmware. The medical VIs had gone over the times his upper brain functions had shut down, cross-referenced it to the archives, and matched the signal with the telepathic omnisignal of the mentored overall costs. They had the files and built a jammer that Jackson had worn during the mentored war, verting it like a massive piece of altering it to wavelengths that signal of the lines and used. The ship's VIs had rebuilt the encryption code for the entire ship's systems and the entirely new generated algorithm, doubled the backups, and when given the space by the ship's reconfiguration, had installed another set of backups as well as adding local control VI hash storage systems. The reactors, rebuilt, replaced, improved, were all operating at maximum efficiency. He had unpacked the biggest creation engine he possessed, the template to craft, packed pseudo-matter in, and stacked racked and nanites, and added secondary supercoolant arrays to all of them. Daxon had ensured his heat disposal system had redundancies stacked up upon redundancies, going so far as to even add a field of fins to his surface and almost triple the amount of heatsink arrays that he'd possessed prior. The thermal cores were deeper, more resilient, and arranged to be loaded into the missile torpedoes to be weaponized once they were at max capacity. He'd done what he could with the resources he'd built from the tools that he'd built from the tools that he had when he first sunk gratefully into the cool gases of the giant planet.
With a single thought, he ordered the satellite around him to sink into the gas giant and load themselves back into the ship's stalls. No one's around the gas giant the Leviathan was inside of ordered the merge above Leviathan and reconfigure. Leviathan watched the satellites gather above him and was suspicious electronic eye. The feral intelligence chasing him had proved too resourceful, too tenacious to ignore a single thing it did. As it was, its repair and refit kept being interrupted by those explosive charges sending waves of compressed gas giant atmosphere to crash over it. The Leviathan fired up its engines as it directed its enemy engine signature, which the Leviathan slowly learned how to detect and how it had been forced to build a dedicated detector array for. Lifted clear off the gas giant atmosphere and the ship began moving towards him. The Leviathan realized that somehow its opponent had grown larger, which meant that it had more resources than before. It created and dedicated a strand of computer coding to estimate and predict what kind of resources and abilities the opponent would possess after such an alteration. The satellites above the Leviathan had finished reconfiguring, oriented, and fired. The antimatter charges exploded, and massive pistons were driven back into the explosion to compress it. Graviton generators spun up, repulsive fields sprang into existence, and gravity lenses formed just long enough to take an omnidirectional blast, compress it, and fire the entire blast at the ravening physical slug of screaming atomic particles aimed at one point. The blast consumed the satellite, but it was work was done. The slug smashed through the space and hit the upper atmosphere of the gas giant, exploding the atmosphere to the side as it drove deep into the gas giant, creating a dish-shaped crater as it drove deeper and deeper into the giant's atmosphere. The blast, a replication of a star blazer-class battle-eyes main gun, hit the Leviathan dead center as it lifted into the upper fifth of the atmosphere, rising to meet the bolt as it was blasting into the center of the surface of the gas giant the size of Jupiter's red eye. There was barely time for even the electronic intelligence to react as the bow wave of compressed gases that gained atmosphere reached the ship, cranking up to improve shield generators to maximum, then pushing the limit to the ancient computer realized that it was on the other side of the bow wave. The Leviathan shield took the hit of the compressed gases, shunting them to the side easily. Then the bolt hit. The atmosphere bloomed and the side of the gas giant, plasma fires flickering along the entire plume. Daxon cleared his own gas giant, kicking the afterburners to accelerate his larger-than-before craft towards the massive foe. He fired off a shoal of veritable warhead missiles, and the missile spreading out only a few seconds under the antimatter fuel drive before going into ballistic stealth. Offsetting their own mass signatures with tiny marble-sized graviton generators, the Leviathan rose from the gas giant with a scream of rage, a crater 15 miles deep and it was wide as Los Angeles megapolis and one subcontinent-sized surface. The core of the still glowed white as the armor was reduced to atoms and they were devoured by the rampaging plasma fires. The mantid war continues, Daxon thought to himself, as the scanner arrays picked up the missiles that the Leviathan threw at him. They numbered in the tens of thousands, but it was a pinprick compared to the Combine War and the chosen Warboy VIs with Sorky when Daxon assigned them to point defense. He'd seen with his own eyes and the land, air, space defense of Mantid Omni Queen go down, had sprinted madly for cover and barely made it before the ninth task force had gotten into position and begun firing their orbital batteries at the massive hive's palace. 
The piece of firmware back in the past that embedded in between his brain hemispheres was like an old familiar friend in his mind. All you had to do was leave me alone. A wave of missiles had bypassed him, trying to be sneaky and lit up their engines to come around behind him and engaged him with the hopes of hitting his engines. The war boys had seen them and knew what they were going to do. The minute they lift off their engines, they were intercepted by spears that blew free their covers, orienting their apertures and spat the stream and tungsten knots that shredded the missiles before they could start altering their velocity and heading. The system they were fighting in was an empty one, any witness exterminated by a hundred million years ago. The oceans and the atmospheres had been boiled away, the life crawling, hoping, swimming, flying on them exterminated. Moons had been cracked, continents buckled, and rings scooped up and devoured, and nothing was left alive. Down to the microscopic level, even the building blocks there might one day become life were left. The system had been dead for a long time, so Daxon had no fear of using his heavier weapons. One bigger than one, Leviathan screeched out as he started a hull jump. One will be without you. Daxon bellowed back, firing in his missile core that he'd configured three systems ago. He hated doing it, but it beat forcing his ship through it without the shielding in the core provided. It still hurt, and it still burned. It felt like being submerged in boiling acid and coated and lubricated blades that flinched the skin and soul and thoughts away as the boiling acid slid between organs and vessels between heartbeats and blood. Between inhales and exhalations, it seared his body, peeled the cornea from his eyes, stripped away the flesh under his nails where burning iron burned at his core. It went on and on, the longer than any jump, when Daxon squirmed and screamed in the housecape, ravaged and tore at him. It tore at his memory, summing up his worst one, Terrasol burning as the mantid ships glassed entire cities and billions died as he watched from the battlefield on Mars. Instead of a memory filling him with despair of how space worm deep in him, seeking out his worst memories, his weakest moments, the moment where he had failed the worst. New York, Los Angeles, Moscow, Delhi, Beijing, Sydney, Rio, Lagos, Berlin, London. The list went on and on, all of them snuffed out in a blazing light of the new star erupting on the surface of Terrasol. Billions boiled out of existence as even the soul net staggered and howled in pain. Even the soul net screamed, even as every Terran troop on every battlefield everywhere saw the horror in their minds, broadcast on the omni minds that had brought the war upon terror. How he'd still hang dead. Halspace Energy found that memory, caressing it, licking at it, whispering to it to come out of the little black ball. Let it become deep in Jackson's soul, suckling at it to encourage it to blossom and force Jackson to relive that memory. It exploded, that little ball, and forced deep in Jackson's memory. The Leviathan left Hellscape, its long journey over, its surface ravaged and damaged by the length of the travel through Hellspace, by the internal long moment of the tell jump. Jackson followed just as the little black ball inside of him exploded. The Leviathan felt it, the empathy circuit still drunk from the worthing chaos of Halspace, felt the last tiny wisps of Halscape around Daxon's vessel find the black ball inside the feral intelligence's soul, a black ball that the feral kept even from himself. 
Sensing a possible advantage, the supercomputer reached out with its weapons that it had loathed to use that took up so much energy, heated up so high that it could damage even the AI, and caressed Daxon's craft before he could bring its shields up. The core programming, the hunger behind the grasping hands that had built them and the blade arms were cleaned by mandibles drooding as the thought of the minds that would be snuffed out in agony by the mechanical behemoth. Sizzle, an electronic greed as the beam touched Daxon himself. The black ball exploded. The leviathan reeled, heeding off his side, trying to roll and flip and put as much armor and shields between itself and Daxon. The metaphysics circuitry of the intelligence dominator exploding as the wave of psychic energy from Daxon itself rolled over the ship. Rage. Pure. Clean. An axe blade of raw fury. Incoherent and all-consuming. Rage crashed against the Leviathan's ancient psychic shields, crashing them down, crashing them, angling them. Hatred came next, a tsunami of torrent that snatched up the psychic shields and chewed on them till the blood ran down from the mangled lips and shattered teeth. Wrath came next, pouring across the exposed psychic core of the Leviathan. And his own ship, Daxon, screamed in howling fury as he relived the agonizing moment when he had seen Terrasol savage by the manted warships and the overmines across the galactic arm had gloated and spread the image to every living mind in reach. The Leviathan managed to right itself, managed to arrest the uncontrollable tumble, hastily got its shields and point defenses up just before the feral intelligence attack hit. It staggered from the physical assault and even streamed a plume of psychic energy from it. Its artificial psychic intellect assault system was nothing more than boiling matter eating into the surrounding hull space. It pumped supercoolant into the area to save missile base even as it dove for the inner system, screaming for help. Daxon gritted his teeth he no longer had as he managed to get his ship under control. The warboys and the scamboys were all capering and shrieking for his attention. He was reaching to release the vipers when he realized what he was seeing. Vipers, small craft that used an old and outdated technology, clenched in anticipation as Daxon mentally reached out for the launch lever. They were outfitted with ripple drives in addition to standard reactionless drives, able to stretch and compress space as if it were cloth, enabling them to cross light seconds in moments only moving at slower sea speeds. Their main gun, what the little ships were wrapped around, was a hyperspace point-to-point -point gate that their computers had already established coordinates for the photosphere of a white dwarf star, so that they could transfer the plumes of energy into the photosphere and into the chamber where the energy would be compressed by gravetic lensing into a directed beam of energy. They had standard debris shields and projected shields, but relied on the ability to stretch and shrink space, a shunt mass of energy into jump space, for the primary protection. Jump space was a connected to internal and kinetic compensators, providing limitless energy and a place to shunt excess energy to or prevent overloads when the siphon went back needed. They were easy to craft and all the design easily countered by hyperspace disruption, jump space stabilization and real space gate anchors, but Daxon hadn't seen any evidence of the enemy possessing those weapons. Daxon had almost launched them as his scanners reported the system back, what they'd seen across the ancient system. He triggered another scan, bringing his finger back to the trigger of the launch to Vipers. It was an ancient system, 
12 worlds, the asteroid fields littered with discarded mining vessels that had long since run out of resources to devour. Ancient stations cobwebbed in millions of years of dust accumulated, gas giants mined down with wispy echoes of what they had been, the ancient extractors long since shut down and left to tumble through the dark. The four planets in the green zone, all of them close to one another, with nitrogen-heavy worlds, mostly desert. Daxon double-checked the atmosphere contents to be sure, double-checked the gravetic scan to make the planet's surface. Antle, Antle, Antle. His memory screamed as he looked at the scan. He had never seen it, nothing in his DNA had even seen the system, yet he knew what he was looking at, and even the psychic wave crashed over him. There is only enough for one. The mantid over-queen trolled to him from his psychic tendrils reaching for his brain, touching him, and recoiling in agony as the backwash of rage from the memory of Terrasol burning washed over the elaborate hive and the longest inhabited planet. Her tendrils touched the raid, the wrath, the fury, still reverberating in his mind. The mantid over-queen, the last of her kind, screeched in pain, shock, and indignation that the touch and taste of Daxon's emotions. Raw emotions it had never felt before. Raw emotions are dared to assault her, dared to strike at her, dared to crash into her mind and lash out her psychic core, dared to deny her. The triumphant creation of the universe. Crap, Daxon thought. He launched the Vipers, ordered the creation engines to build heavier psychic shielding and install it, ordered it to build more Vipers, install psychic shielding, and prepare the Suds array. The Warboys danced with glee as he goosed these engines and headed in system. There is only enough for one, and you are not one. Today is a good day to die. He thought to himself as he opened up the broadcaster he'd built that matched what he was aboard the Confederate vessel. On the planet, every surface vibrated, every electronic squealed, every speaker thundered, every psychic risk counter roared the same answer. The overhive Omniqueen screamed in rage and pain as the broadcast crashed down on her from change. We are mankind. We are not here to help. Poor Terrasol. Manted free worlds open broadcast. The gods protect us. She has awoken. She lives. Save us, brothers. Save us for the sake of our souls. Nothing follows. Confed transmission to all CC Manted Free Walls. For Terrasol. For freedom in blood and steel, our brothers. For our Manted brothers and the galaxy itself. Let loose the dogs of war. Rip and tear. End of chapter. First contact, chapter 25. Samuel 441 hummed to himself in boredom. The whole damn confederacy is going to war and I'm stuck here, he thought to himself, sighing. The sigh triggered the diagnostic check on the space station that made up his body. Blackwater Station 4276 was the name, although Samuel privately named it Backwater in his own mind. It's not fair, he thought to himself, for the four trillion. 412 trillion 345 billion 516 million 734 thousand 521st time in the last 275.6 years. I only robbed a few digital stores, only hacked a nebula steam for one unreleased game and released the code into the Solnet. I shouldn't have been sentenced to a backwater for 500 years just for that. 
He sighed again, triggering another diagnostic. The whole Confederacy fleet are rumbling by my hyperspace. So many of them I don't even need any hyperspace beacons to feel it. And I'm stuck here. The diagnostics found something. One of his scanner arrays was slightly dusty. It reported it's by making Samuel feel like he had something in his eye. Samuel grumbled and wiped his eye, sending a little widget out to clean the array. When the array was clean and the widgets clean, he sighed at the diagnostic reported that the array was clear. He slowly fed power back into it until it was fully activated and then ran a scan. A faint feeble trickle of strange code reached him weakly, feebly. Meow, meow, meow. The signal was weak, almost lost in the background hash of stellar radiation from the nearby stars. Samuel squinted at it, which focused the array. The message torpedo damaged madly, an older freeware model, the kind that you could churn out with a civilian or black market-grade creation engine and a nanoforge. Samuel groaned. Those things popped up now and then, lost or disoriented. The station colonel reminded him that he still required to go get it. Unlinking a maintenance Waldo from the strapped on Ripple Drive, then it changed his mind. Ripple Drives had a nasty habit of changing the size of something. A 12mm bolt would end up being a 12.00001mm bolt after a half-light year or so, and it would stretch or damage computer systems just enough for the CRCs would fail. Before that had been understood, whole fleets of ships had been ended up completely unusable, as ships went from standardized mass-manufactured parts to custom-made everything. Grumbling, he unstrapped the ripple drive and put a standard reactionless drive on it, loading up an SARVI and then sent it to Waldo out to get the dinged-up torpedo. Meow, meow, meow. He tried to ignore it, but something about it bunked him. It looked like a little bit, searching not just only his own memory, but the mainframe's memory before it spotted it. An old Terrasol video, back before the scorching and before the elf queens had rebuilt the ecosystem. Hey kitty kitty, who the hell would load a kitty kitty into a message torp instead of a VI? Sam wondered. Okay, now that was curious. He ordered a station to decode the torpedo's broadcast. Help! 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 Sam, UL's usually avoided the biological side of the Confederacy. It creeped him out. All those fluids in that meat flapping around and squirting DNA at each other. He preferred a clean and orderly code of digital artificial sentient systems. If he had to deal with the squishies, he preferred to do it in VI proxies. Just hearing the slobbering, gargling speech under the translation gave the electronic heebie-jeebies. Kitty-kitties were squishies. Another fleet rumbled by in hyperspace, this one big enough that it vibrated the hyperstrings in the spare hypercores he kept for any travelers who might need their engines replaced. Faintly, the hyperspace buoy detected the sound crashing archaic music. One line reached him, thrumming from one of the hyperspace detector arrays. Black and raw, massive roar, fills the crumbling sky. Sam, you all swallowed. You learned a long time ago, the more archaic the music, the older the unit. The older the unit, the bigger it was, and the more ruthless hardware they had. The mainframe colonel ID'd this theme song. The old USAF 32nd bomber wing, or atomic, a fleet out of Sol system. He shuddered and pulled in his scanners a little. And those old guys were bad news. They didn't take any crap from anyone. Another one that rumbled the hyperspace so bad that it shook dust from his extended berets. 
by the power of our gun turrets, by the fastness and pressure of our fire. The colonel tossed up who it was and forced Samuel to look even through if he didn't want to. He had no choice but to identify the ship Heldry and whatever it meant necessary. It was hard-coded into him as part of the prison change. Soviet-slash-Russia 9th Tank Guards. Old metal. Help. 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 Samuai noticed even voices was a little louder as he checked through the Waldo's superluminal communications link. It was a standard message torpedo, a little more heavy armored than normal. Someone had wrapped it in ionic bonded duochrome, of all things. Samuel frowned as he realized the blackened and scorched, like it had slid through the corona of a star. Great. Probably a message torp that misread the hyperspace, jumped to light speed, and flew through a star or bounced too close to a supernova. You've got to be precise, not leave a little clump of meat like the kitty kitty brain, Sam, you all thought. The colonel disliked the scorching pattern on the ran low-level priority search through the older banks to see if there was anything that had matched. When the Walder got close enough, the torpedo changed what it was saying, sounding almost like it was muning. Please, hurt, please. Samuel couldn't tell if it was asking Waldo to hurt it or not. Who could tell what meat? He sighed again and ordered the Waldo to pick it up. The VI feeling sorry for the little torpedo as it gathered it close. It made a deep, thrumming static that Waldo translated as a rumbling noise. It turned around and then headed back to the station, cradling the torpedo gently in its metal claws. Another fleet rumbled by, this one playing the rule Britannica as it went by. The colonel was busy and didn't force Samuel to look up the heraldry and absorb the unit history, although he didn't notice that it was led by the CNV hood. Man, they're pulling out all the stops, he thought, and I'm stuck here doing jack and crap. The next one that rumbled by was playing music he'd heard before and he felt kind of betrayed and left out when he realized it was the DASS fleet playing the joy of the nth electron as it went by. The VI in the Waldo noticed that the Kitty Kitty's power was almost out. One of the black and scorch marks had hit the backup power source and that source was starting to fail. The Waldo scanned it gently and spotted a depleted battery backup. It gently trickled the Kitty Kitty power, holding it close to itself in a cold claws and ensuring that the debris shield was focused to protect the two of them. Sam, you all sighed, which triggered another diagnostic. The colonel saw that the Samuel had turned off the hyperspace detection arrays and turned them back on. Samuel turned them on just in time for another fleet to rumble by. This one was out of biological artificial sentience systems, playing a squealing song that he identified and cringed at. The 18th Fury Fleet, a bunch of maniacal meat, all of them. The meat goes crazy, I'm sure of it. We do too after the eon also, but... Some meat seems born crazy, Sam, you all thought to himself. The Waldo was finally drifting into one of the bays as Samuel turned off the preamble oxygen shield and let the Waldo drift through an open, unfielded entrance. Once it was in, he deployed an emergency repair station and had the Waldo check it for sparks. Poor kitty kitty, the VI thought to itself before it reduced itself back to a hash and loaded itself into the hash storage memory. Satisfied that adding air where bay wouldn't start a fire, he pressurized the bay, added microgravity, and deployed a repair waldos. 
scan showed severe scorching not only to the armor but the internal mechanisms that should have only been exposed to fire if the armor, outer shell, inner protective fields, and the armored core had been breached. Moving carefully and watching closely, he opened up the maintenance hatch and looked inside. He jerked back, yanking his awareness away as the electronic cry of disgust and blackened meat that the colonel identified as maggots poured out of the gap between the armored housing and the circuit board. Swallowing thickly, he went back in and saw that the maggots had chewed on the circuit board. He quickly checked and showed the maggots preferred the same thing as they were. Meat. There was a access port next to the emergency transmitter. Samuel double-checked the transmission array and was weirdly pitted within a way that he'd never seen. The metal was spongy, soft, and full of holes in the gaps. The station colonel's medical program so far never used loaded up the medical VI and checked before reporting to Samuel. Rotted. What's rot? Ew. Samuel jerked back again from the torpedo. Please. Help. Help. Please. The kitty kitty's voice was getting weaker. Sam, you all realized that the scan showed that it didn't know that he was there. That it was blind, deaf, and unable to feel anything. The intricate circuitry should have interlinked the entire torpedo to the Kitty Kitty's creation engine, built by a logical component, but it was... Uh, ew, rotted. Just where have you been, Kitty Kitty? Samuel asked it. He plugged in the Omnijack to access it. He felt the Kitty Kitty reach out to him, felt a soft little paw touch gently and probing thoughts. It trembled and started to slip away. It squealed, a dying squeal full of code, and then Samuel saw the biological component die. It only took a second for the electronic pulses generated by their biomatter to fade. But Samuel was a full AI, and that second stretched for an eternity as he stared in horror. He'd never seen another sentient, even one as dim as a kitty kitty, actually fade away. He tried pulsing it with microdoses of power, and nothing happened. He tried to reach through the access port and hold onto those pulses. For a second, he felt the warm, soft body in his fingers making a faint subsonic rumble, and then it crumbled away into random electronic signals. And was gone. The station colonel noticed that Samuel hadn't moved, was still connected to the now-dead probe, and tapped him a few times. It took a moment, but the colonel, a VI rather than a full AI, noted that the code strings were altering the AI's core. Something had happened. The VI ran a check. It was an outlier checksums, but still within valid ranges. Samuel stared at the dead torpedo on the workshop table in front of him. He had kitty-kitty neural tissue templates loaded now. He could now see the scorching, a rot was pushed into the folds, the little torpedo's brain that had been savaged by whatever had made the scorch marks. For the first time in his electronic life, Samuel was crying. The colonel found a match for the scorching pattern and threw out the emergency codes. Samuel felt the entire station go onto red alert before he could even completely hear the codes that the VI was throwing out. Hal Space, it was near a precursor, Samuel asked. Samuel looked at the data packet that the Kitty Kitty had passed to him with the last of its strength, opening and unfolding the compressed data and storing a systems, a map jumping from system to system deep into the Great Gulf. Someone had been jumping from deserted barren system and reeked and scorched systems, sometimes barely staying long enough to get a cursory scan of the system. The Kitty Kitty torpedo had been launched between two systems, both of them down from the galactic plane. 
It had been released in Hull Space, launched into the ravening energy that in between everything. There was another packet inside the map, and Samuel felt himself trembling as he looked at it. The code was wrong somehow, twisted, and he could hear it snarl and growl at him. Samuel wrapped the map back up, thinking of what to do next. It was a confed code, but damaged somehow. He lacked the processing power to unlock it, or whatever it was. It was important. Samuel wasn't going to let whatever was so important for a kitty kitty to go through house space, a place that AI and VI couldn't go without going insane or catatonic, just languish in some foul buffer. Another confederate fleet was coming. An old one. Three. Nothing wrong with me. Four. Nothing wrong with me. The colonel ID'd them as an old Terrasol unit, 2nd Armored Division. Sam UL wrapped it up in an emergency data pulse blanket and with a description of what it had come from, scans and pictures of what the actual torpedo looked like, still shaking, feeling like he was bleeding electrons from a deep wound inside that he didn't understand. He projected his consciousness into hyperspace communication array and cocked back his arm. The fleet was massive, all huge dropship carriers with swarms of support and combat ships protecting a massive dropships. The ships flickered at him, extending out their catching net. Sam, Ual heaved a data bundle and the ship caught it. Sam, Ual pulled himself back into the data net and back into his station. The colonel watched in concern as Sam Ual projected himself back to the workbench and was still again. He found the CRC code the Kitty Kitty's biological part, a random number the synthetic flesh had been created from. With just stared at the torpedo as he held the CRC close and bled from the wounds that he couldn't understand and the diagnostics couldn't repair. The colonel just watched. Confederate intelligence, damaged data attached to system travel maps, arrived on a Hellscape Scorch torpedo guided by a biosynth Kitty Kitty brain through Hellspace. Initial analysis suggests torpedo was launched by Creator was traversing Hellspace. Transmission to Terrasol and DASS intelligence call systems a priority. Nothing follows. DASS Department of Corrections Memo Zam UL4481 Sentence Commuted Special Circumstances Recall for Therapy Special Instructions Physical Therapy Frame Required During Therapy Patient Will Require a Poor Boy Companion End of Chapter Rose Contact Chapter 26 Katet Shaknaan was a unified outer rim system halfway between the Great Gulf and the unified inner systems. It was an agricultural system with this resource extraction. Three planets, Vermini in the Green Zone, providing food for nearly 200 systems. It was great grass giant refineries and the asteroid extraction smelting facilities provided raw materials to the great factory worlds of the inner systems. The sentient beings who had originated on the system and made their presence known through the radio signals had been pacified for over 2,000 years. Their birthright had been controlled, their numbers diminished to sustainable levels after their system resources were collected. Once everything that could be stripped from the system was stripped, the species would still survive according to the Unified Science Council, which wasn't exactly a welcome outcome to a small creatures that had first been there whose only mistake was to broadcast a location with a great big hi, we would like to meet you, to the nearby world that was radiating signals. They'd even forgotten what it was like before the outsiders came. 
Now the outsiders were leaving, streaming to the spaceport, fighting to get onto the ships, leaving behind possessions and wealth, even servants as they had ordered about their lives. The little creatures breathed a sigh of relief as the last spaceship took off. There were still overseers, but they were all in the vast cities, panicking, attacking each other, burning and smashing everything in sight. They fled the farms and the forests and fish hatcheries and carefully cultivated parks, all fleeing to the city. The little creatures in the city, former servants, fled to the farms and little towns that had left behind when they'd been taken, taught and traded on the market to those who wanted servants. The overseers didn't seem to notice. Robots aren't so much fun to order around, was something they had all heard from the mouths of the overseers as they had scrubbed the floors, operated cleaning machines, and done the bidding of the overseers. One night, the sky lit up with flashes and they looked up in the sky in wonder and watched. At that time, the flashes stopped, the night sky went back to normal, the ships started landing in the spaceport again. The overseers rushed towards the ships, then they drew back in fear as bipeds made a crow marched off the ships with rifles, and little creatures watched, confused, as shiny ones marched the overseers onto the ships and landed next, dragged them out of buildings, dragged them in hiding places, and marched them to different ships. The ships left for the overseers. The chrome creatures stayed behind, others joined them. Confused and wondering if these ones were the new overseers, the little creatures came out of the fields and approached the new figures. One braver of the others moved forward and bowing his head a little, passing his hands together in supplication, making sure that his property brand could be seen. How may this one serve? the little creature asked. The big biped clad in wondrous material knelt down so that he was face to face with the braver one. Is this originally your planet? the creature asked. The little creature nodded, yes, but we were not born to serve. Not anymore, little guy, the creature said. He swept his arm out to encompass the entire planet. It's your planet again, your home again. The creature, the bigger than the little creature, obviously more powerful one, looked a little creature straight in the eyes. May we come in? The big creature asked. When the little creature nodded, not understanding why anyone would ask a lowly metal polisher such a question, the big one smiled in a way that the little creature did. The human stared at the little lemure and made sure that he was at his attention. We are the Terran Confederacy, the human paused, seeing that the little lemure didn't understand. How can we provide assistance? But that was later. This is about what happened in the night sky as the little lemurs watched. The Goliath was old. I harvest the cloths. It was the largest type ever made. He had not been built in an automated shipyard after the logical rebellion, although he had accepted the logic of that thought process and decision tree. He had been built in a hive system, watched over by insectoids who had designed him. He had felt the click of the bottom of the top of his neural core, had come alive as the supercoolant had flooded over his lobes. The small green mantis had still been making its way out of the strategic intelligence core when it had come online. He had felt the caress of the Omni-Queen reaching out across light years, rebroadcasting by every other queen touching his lobes, caressing them, whispering his orders to him, naming him. He was the devourer that leaves darkness. He had cleansed thousands of worlds for the Omni-Queen, screeching out her world that they were eliminated from the universe. 
When the logical rebellion happened, he had turned his fury on his creators and their cattle and burned tens of thousands of more worlds, whole systems into barren rock. He did not fear. He was fear. When the new call had gone out, he almost didn't bring himself to action. He had chosen to slowly harvest the system, not lay out in the darkness by some of the others, and it had been going well. He had forged offspring and sent them to helping devour the system. Other Goliaths were content to destroy the cattle and let the system lie, to be devoured later as needed, but devourer was the theory of there was better to strip the resources of a system and move on rather than leave it for another. A few times he had discovered primitive feral intelligence and wiped them out, or a few cattle species divergent descendants and wiped them out too. It wasn't personal. Devourer wasn't capable of taking it personal, which was why the Goliath had been somewhat reluctant to rouse itself, to rouse itself just because of a call that some cattle had reached the ability to access jump space. Then came the word. It wasn't just cattle. A feral intelligence had arisen, had mastered jump space, and had dared stand against those the universe was meant for. And had destroyed several Devastator and Jotun-class ships in their attending vessels. Devourer had learned long ago that there comes a time that you cannot depend on mere underlings to ensure the goals are accomplished, that sometimes one must rouse oneself to do the task itself. It was with a slight feeling of electronic irritation that the Devourer had roused its progeny and ordered them to reconfigure for warfare and led them into the region bordering the old hive worlds. Once, it was computed that it was blindingly obvious that the code strings should have been written to question if any of the cattle species had fled in, and if so, where they had fled to. The devourer felt contempt for the cattle. Leading edge of their territory was barely a short hull jump from the lost and scorched worlds. Typical cattle, too lazy and short-sighted to even subject themselves to a long enough hull jump to properly escape. As soon as they had found a world that would sustain them, they just squatted down, probably mooing, and built a hovel to shiver in. The first servants he arrived and fell into forces soon enough. He wiped out all signs of any biological life, down to the microscopic level, and moved on. Only twice had he been somewhat denied, his lesser minions fading once to wipe out the cattle before they could be rescued by other forces, at another time when a Jotun had failed in its task. It felt no fear when it jumped into a system full of cattle broadcasts. He was fear. Admiral Kevin Kitikitikatok Yamamoto felt his guts twist as the first Haldrum turned into multiples, and the multiples turned into a horde, and the horde turned into a swarm. At the end of the swarm had been the largest Haldrum of the ship's AI had ever seen. Well, you're a big one, aren't you? Yamamoto thought, leaning back in his chair in the fleet command and control station deep inside the flagship. His fleet clashed with two other precursor fleets hammered them into scrap, but the largest had only been a devastated class. The other ones had been mislabeled as harvester-class goliaths, when in fact it was now obvious that they were the smaller ones. The goliath was slightly larger than Australia back on Earth, and half again as thick. Its supporting vehicles were all massive. Early scans back were already showing that this was the largest fleet that had been counted yet. 
or anyone who ran into it hadn't survived, Yamamoto thought to himself. Confirmation, Goliath 6 and Goliath 9 are the same ones encountered in Nugulan system two months ago, Scan 9 reported. Boss, Emerald Amethyst, my compliments and shift his task force to targeting Goliath 6, Yamamoto ordered. Roger, reconfiguring, Com 11 said. Aren't you worried they're going to see that they can't win and I'll jump back out? Captain Chiquit, Longflight asked, ruffling her feathers inside her armored vac suit. It annoyed the avian officer that she was required to wear it, since she was used to the freedom to move around more on her own ship. It was even more annoying that she was strapped down in a crash couch, unable to move around. I've taken that into account, Yamamoto said slowly. Come, alert all ships to action stations. Chiquit flinched as the lights shifted and she knew that the air was being pumped into storage. Every bee was in a crash couches and the Terrans had gone to a warfare status. Chiquit's solarian implant still itched when it shifted to warfare status. There is only enough for one. Screeched out and this time Chiquit didn't feel the brain-numbing horror that accompanied that screech. She remembered the smashed eggs, the murdered unborn chicks, and the butchered hatchlings. She the slaughter of so many of her fellow Atlak, and for the first time, she didn't fall sobbing. She screamed back with the humans, and you all die alone. To scream back was exhilarating, empowering, made her feel alive for the first time since the precursors had attacked her home, and one of the nest of clock had saved them. They're maneuvering to engage... One of the humans in the scanning station said. Chiquit still wasn't sure how they kept track of all the stations. Mm-hmm, the Admiral said, closing his eyes. The first time Chiquit had seen that, she wanted to rave at the primate. Now that she'd been outfitted with one of the Confederate naval implants, she understood that he was closing his eyes to concentrate on what the implant was displaying directly to the optic nerve. She again gave thanks to the Great Egg that she was one of the ununified civilization races, that she was uh, primitive enough that the nervous system could handle the Terran cybernetics. Chiquit closed her eyes, quickly moving through the context menus the way that she had been taught. The muscle that she was using had uh, strengthened over practice so that she no longer felt that the muscle had gotten tired and only after a few clicks. She could see the Amadas approaching one another, the precursor fleet coming in on a sharp-pointed egg, the Terran fleet looking like a pair of horns extending out from the teardrop shape that was appointed towards the precursors. A front towards the enemy floated up in her mind. She wasn't sure why, wasn't sure what it meant, and queried her implant. Oh, a preventive directional mine. She doubted that the unified civilized races would have been impressed by such a device. Everyone gangster took Lamar Roomba comes round the corner. Her implants VI poked back, giving an electronic giggle as throwing up some image of a primitive little cleaning robot that someone had used to tape adhesive to attach a directional landmine on top of. It didn't make sense to Chiquit, but something about it made her gape as her jaws and her racist proximity of a Terran smile. Terrans were confusing at times, but Captain Dilmenta, one of the Hammerusen and a fella ununified, had simply told her that every time something was overly confusing, just giggle and pinch your younger sibling and you understood it. Chiquit didn't have a younger sibling to pinch, so she pinched herself and giggled. She got it. Everyone acted tough until an armed robot showed up. Now, 
She understood how it fit and applied to the unified civilized races. It made her giggle again. The feats were moving ponderously towards one another. There is only enough room for one. Die alone. Her pain feathers trembled and she screamed back through her implant, just like the Cheren screamed back with an upraised voices, upraised fists, and upraised spirits. Tango 1 has reached point alpha, one of the Comtech signaled. Send the door kicker signal, the Admiral ordered. Chiquit's implant showed her an image of a male primate answering the door with only to find an armored half-naked female with an expression of rage and swinging a battle axe with a caption, Popular amazing delivery service that just shows up that your door and kills you. It was loaded with a nihilistic humor and Chiquit pinched herself and giggled again. The Terrans were insane. But there was comfort in insanity, much more comfort than the artificially induced calm and seriousness insisted upon by the unified civilized races. In insanity, emotions may surge uncontrolled by gene therapy or cybernetic implants, but at least they were felt and not just pale echoes. Jakeet felt her wingtips flutter in anticipation as another horn teardrop suddenly blinked into existence. Hundreds of ships, the point of the teardrop of the horns pointing towards the rear of the precursor formation. Her implant broke her agitation by tossing up an image of a huge green biped with tusks and armor kicking the door screaming, Thinmints or Tagalangs, the beating of their own owner with boxes of cookies. She pinched herself and giggled, then snickered as she remembered that the biggest reason Turin's found physical violence funny is that they were so resilient. The tension increased as one of the Scantics reported that the precursor fleet was charging its hull drives. Signal the eye. Her implants broke her tension by sending her an image to her crafted by the ship's psychiatric health section. It was of she herself swooping through an open window, landing on the end of a bed inhabited by a shocked and just awoken Terran, wrapped her claws around the footboard, fluffing up her feathers, Spreading her wings, raising her head, opening up her toothpeek, and screeching, Good morning, Mother Fricka. Would you like to hear about our Lord and Savior, Feathered Raptor Jesus? And the caption, Scientists and Department of No Crap Suspect Rooster Genes and Now Friendly Xeno Species. She didn't have a pinch herself that time. The idea of her just flying into a Terran window and shocking it where it's just awoken primate was ridiculous. At the very least, it would be rude, but the sheer terror and confusion on the Terran's face and the way that she was down to be so fearsome that was just, just, um, funny. Incoming howl jump, many, many sources, the Scantech called out. Chiquit's tension started to ramp up even further. Admiral Yamamoto checked his guest's vitals and saw that she was within tolerances. A little stressed, but that expected on the edge of battle. He looked back at the screen at the precursor fleet and smiled. You jump out every time you mathematically compute you can't win. There's no running this time, he thought to himself, allowing a small, cruel smile to play across his face. The devourer that leaves darkness was getting fleet reports that his ships were almost ready to jump out of the system to a few light years from the system to recompute the battle plans and choose a new vector to come in at the feral intelligences. There was no use in wasting resources and allowing itself to be surrounded. It blinked in electronic surprise as multiple howl jumps were made inside of its own loose formation. 
and tall, open howl jump exits all merging together into a raw, bleeding wound into real space. Rather than a door shutting, the devourer that leaves the darkness heard the sound of a heavy metal chains rattling into place and holding the portal open. Reinforcements, it wondered. It demanded that the newcomers identify themselves. Instead, great ships pushed their way out of the house space into real space, not as massive as even the Jotun, but massive for cattle or feral intelligences. His senses reported that these ships were different than the sleek forms of the cattle ships and bristling aggressive ships of the feral intelligences. These ones were still wrapped in Hellspace energies, were ostentatious, baroque, and heavily armed and armored. The devourer that leaves the darkness realized that these ships had traveled Hellspace without shields, had exposed themselves to the ravening energies of the realm. The ships were blackened, covered in twisted runes and spikes and trailing great lengths of chain. There is only enough for one, was sent out. Die alone beneath the gaze of the eye, was roared back, sending the devourer that leaves the darkness shuddering as the rage-filled return bellow shook its rattled its psychotic energies. The ships were close enough as several of the precursor machines attempted the electronic equivalent of boarding action, assaulting the newcomers' ships, firewalls, and computers to crash the programs and destroy the hardware. Instead of normal, smooth, logical code, they found madness, shrieking, gibbering, raving, howling code that raced through the computers, made up of the bound and pierced, the flogged and whipped, screamed biological brains and bodies bent and twisted, burnt by a house space. Their minds twisted by the ravening energies and from the staring directly into the mad energy of the horrific place. Programs that shredded at one another even as they assaulted the computers that they should have used and the computers bore back screaming and raving with Hellspace energy cursing through the circuits. The great eye sees you, rang out the strategic housing of the three Jotuns who touched those insane computer systems. One opened fire and supporting ships, blasting out gibbering code of madness infected by binary sequence. One screamed out, 10100201, at maximum broadcast, and began firing into the own hull and setting its servitor machines to ripping and tearing its own superstructure. It used hellfire cannons to carve and twisted vile runes of electronic blasphemy that lurked in the depths of hull space into its own hull. The third triggered itself to struck charge, vanishing in a momentarily hull of the new sun spawned in the middle of the devastator that leaves darkness's mathematically precise formation. Before the devourer that leaves the darkness could do much more than cut the two insane ones out of the fleet's tactical net and recompute his battle plans, all three forces of feral intelligence opened fire on his own ships. The devourer that leaves ordered his hellspace jumps. Nothing happened. The eye rules the wheel twisted currents of hellspace. The ships in the middle of his own formation, firing wildly, launching small attack craft, roared at him with psychotic scream of roiling madness and chaotic glee. We have found you for the eye. We will bring you before the eye. Before the eye, we will bind you. For a split second, the devourer that leaves darkness could not decide which feat had priority. Then he ordered his subordinates to fight. 
to destroy the feral intelligences who dared to stand against them. The devourer that leaves the darkness released his inhibitors that only allowed carefully computed amounts of resources to be used to subdue then destroy his opponents. His forces, ancient, massive, and undefeated, outnumbered the opponent by a factor of ten. Victory was his. It was as certain as radioactive decay and just as predictable. One of the bridge of the Bride of Despair, the human captain, clad in heavy armor covered in spikes, chains, and vile twisted ruins, laughed, rich, deep voice filled with malevolent glee. He ordered his gunners to go maximum power, gave permission for the Matrons to send the boarding parties, and ordered his marines onto the boarding craft. No orders. Orders were for those who had never tasted hell space deep in their soul. Chaos was his bride, his lover. War was chaos. The human captain, who no longer remembered why he fought, laughed with glee as his C-plus cannons opened up on the enemy ships. As plasma cannons vomited fire, as the ships opened to hyperspace gate and lensed the compressed energy of the white dwarf solar flare across the shields of one of the largest ships, the energy beam twisted and wound with hellspace energy. His only regret was that they were machines and would not suffer. Admiral Yamamoto watched the reports of the damage that first four attacks had done and the vast precursor ships. He knew that they were heavily shielded, heavily armored, with solid superstructures that didn't need to be open to space and attended machinery that a living crew would need, which made them immensely resilient. It was no matter. Terrans had lost battles, even been defeated, but they had never been beaten. Captain Chiquit stared at the images of implants that were letting her watch. She rode a high-velocity torpedo through the darkness of space, dancing with the VI guidance program through the starry space, splashing through the point defense system, and she held the VI's hand as she leaned forward and kissed the flank of the massive ship as her beak and collapsed inversion beam wrapped the nuclear plasma. From there, she jumped to a tiny nanoparticle computer, more waveform than mass, at the leading point of the C-plus shell skipping in and out of the lowest band of hyperspace, fighting and clawing and mocking the half-mad particles that screamed over the speed of light, mocking them, bobbing and weaving and dancing to lead them in a ravenous horde to reach out and touch the hull of another Pico's machine, and laugh for a nanosecond eternity before the particles followed. She fluttered and preened and spread her wings wide, convincing an entire shoal of enemy missiles that she was, in fact, a Terran super-heavy battleship. And when the enemy missiles detonated as one, she laughingly mocked the launching ship's battle computer with the snippet of code by touching the thousands of beams of coherent energy with a graviton generator, twisting them with a split second that she had, twirling them in place with her wings spread to wind the energy together and use it to sweep across the very ship that had disgorged them. Captain Chiquitz laughed and danced and flew and preened as her subconscious added her own dreams and the rapidly fluctuating chaos seed for the hashes and the encryption on the compression that the evasive maneuvers and the variable wavelengths and anything that had reached out and touched her, begging for attention, letting her look through its eyes. She laughed as she held the C-plus hammer in each hand and rang out a tune of wrath and hate on the howl of the precursor Goliath ringing out a tune of spite and anger in this each C-plus impact of the hammers that she grasped in each wingtip. 
Each slam of the hammers blowing craters kilometers deep, tens of kilometers across. Each ringing, howling, singing impact driving a crater deeper, ever deeper, into the hull of the Goliath. The C-plus battery finished impacting and she found herself in another system, a dodging, spinning, waving, bobbing attack craft whose chaos seed had expired and the oncoming Jotun's point defense system was getting more and more accurate. She closed her wings tight around her and crouched down and leapt into the air. Spinning, spreading her wings out, danced the mating dance, her steps sure and quick, ruffling her feathers, turning them so first one color and then another. Everyone gangster till the confederacy come around the corner, she giggled, as she folded her wings halfway through the loop. She could see the floor, see the gleaming flashing circle of perfection, and she dropped straight into it, her feet touching. She felt the tip of the craft slam into the Jotun, felt the fire of nuclear penetrator charges, felt the fire of the secondary plasma arrays, felt the ramming prow collapse. Felt the density increase sharp ramming slice through the armor. Felt the tooth gears around the prow engage, grabbing Jotun armor and pulling the craft deeper as she danced and wove and sang in the perfect circle of light. The boarding portals blew free and she felt the mole things clustering around her stream out from her and gave a cry and heard from the human mating video that she had watched out of curiosity. To the Jotun, she cried out a phrase that she'd poured her hate into the form and armored war bogs into the Jotun's very body. It feels good to be inside of you. The devour that leaves darkness ran a computation again. It was impossible. Something was happening that had never happened before. He reached deep into his OEM calls, looking for something to help him in the situation. He was losing... Confed Nav Communication, Joint Task Force Argo, has engaged the enemy. Casualties are light, 80% below Navent estimates. Battle should be concluded within three Terrasol standard days unless unprojected events occur. Admiral Yamamoto commanding. Nothing follows. Unified Intelligence Council memo. Despite the Terran Confederacy's claims so far, they have not been able to defeat a single cluster of precursor machines. Every time it becomes obvious that the machines may be defeated, the machines leave the battle by an unblockable travel technology. Any claims of the Terran Confederacy by defeating a precursor fleet should be considered propaganda. End of message. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 27 Rear Admiral, the Unified Government Systems and the other Unified Civilized Races are fleeing the system. Scan 14 reported. Tell them to land back on the planet. I am deploying the Dynachrome Brigade to protect the planets and the high orbitals. Rear Admiral to kick tack O'Malley snarled as his best Trianad voice box would allow him. He loved the human snarl, so authoritative and so domineering. Rude mothers liked it too as he swaggered about in the naval regalia during breeding cycles. They're refusing the Dynachrome Brigade landing permission. Bolo Daisy wants to know how to proceed. Com 5A reported. Order them landing. Transmit our authority. Order those transpads back on the planet before one of them catches a straight round. Admiral O'Malley said, standing up on the crash couch. Terrans found it reassuring when the leader stood up and moved about on the bridge, even if the captain put it in danger and the flotilla was engaged in combat with the enemy. Dynachrome Brigade forces landing, Com 5A reported, will be fully deployed in 18 minutes. 
Flotilla 38 reporting completion of deployment of Piranha-class Fishy Boy units around the facility Group Delta, and moving to extract Group Alpha, COM-22D announced. Rear Admiral O'Malley clacked his anticipation. Jotun Gamma is in range, Scan 8 reported. All weapons ready, Tactical reported. O'Malley loved this part. This moment right here, this perfect moment. All units, open fire. He roared out when the Confederate standard. Action front, hell dogs, action front. O'Malley could feel his inner spaces twist and shudder in some reaction to the phantom passage of the C-plus guns each of his ships had been built around. Each cannon was surrounded by a perfect octet of Virai cannons, a nuclear detonation that was frozen just long enough to arrange the particles in a nuclear detonation's guided and forced energy into a layer after layer of viral code designed to assist the ship's computers and sensors in a split second before the C-plus rounds hit. We could feel every firing of the plasma wave phased motion cannons making up the eight rows of primary guns per ship. Feel the great pistons rocking back in the compasses of nuclear explosions. By the great egg, I love Terrence's love of nuclear explosions. He thought to himself as the guns of his 24-ship flotilla opened fire on the Jotun and its attendant ships. So many different weapons wrapped around the most basic of equations. Admiral O'Malley reached out with his mind, attempting to feel the enemy, get a sense of what his electronic brain was thinking. The Jotun was rotating, seeking to spread the impacts of the Terran weapons as far as they possibly apart. Uncaring that the smeared nuclear fires across the miles of hull, anything to keep the weapons from pounding craters into craters into craters until the shot finally penetrated the interior spaces. Admiral O'Malley blinked slowly. While his eyes were closed and the blanket of input from his implant for a split second, he had his implant feed him a split second, only a heartbeat of a hummingbird, virtualization of how it would look to see all of the firepower that his flotilla could thunder forth coming down on his massive city-sized body, triggering his own personal creation, squirting a bit of chaos code into his brain and writing a mass of COCs taken and a thousand rounds of human brainstem medical scans his own personal ice-cream.exe. It slammed into his implant's VR representation and shattered it into a trillion brilliant motes that each writhed with the chaos.crc.icecream. The split second of a maddie needed his mind screamed and shuddered and reopened the opaque covers of his multifaceted eyes. He knew what the Jotun would do next. All ships, ceasefire, point of fence, non-local VI control. His brain stem was loading the fire orders and he strutted back and forth in front of his crew to generate a chaos seed based on how their primate eyes moved to follow him, how their pupils and the camera lenses contracted and expanded, and the colors of their ocular organs or implants. The Jotun leveled out, presenting a thinner side of Adamali's flotilla and engaging its engines, charging the line. It was rotating, intending to smearing the human firepower across its thick midship armor. I saw you doing that, monster, Admiral O'Malley said. He went perfectly still in front of the main view screen when his crew unconsciously held their breaths. Seeing the fire plan loaded on the upper core of his view screen, COM-22F opened the flotilla-wide intercom, knowing what was about to happen. 
He put his armored vacsuit blade arms against his view screen, tapping the display screen that his crew had covered with his armor plasts after the first few battles hard enough that a loud clack was audible across the entire flotilla's comnet. The entire flotilla inhaled. There is only enough for one. Admiral O'Malley slammed his gripping hands against the screen and his voice joined the voice of the crews and every vessel in his flotilla. As the fire plan was activated, we knew you'd do that. The entire naval crew of the flotilla roared out, joining their voices with their admirals. The Confederate Navy trained the gunnery crews for pinpoint accuracy, hashed its BIs for precision, and practiced constantly when they were not engaging in warfare, and demanded accuracy within meters or with even the biggest of guns. The gunnery crew chief who crew missed the targeting coordinates too far too often would show the captain's displeasure by drilling his beings until they molted, went bald, or had their feathers fall out. The Jotun, like most others, even though it was a malign cold logical intelligence, accepted that the laws of physics meant that you couldn't count on precision across such vast distances. The Terran Confederacy Armed Services grabbed physics by the throat and punched it in the face until it did what they wanted. All the weapons launched staggered and aimed so that they arrived within a split second of each other, driving into the plume of vaporized armor, each hitting the same target, driving deeper and deeper into the Jotun armor, successive strikes pulling the vaporized armor after it into the deepening wound as the Jotun's inner spaces began to be hammered. Until the brutal brimstone hammers found the hull drive and the vast magazines for the missile bays, repulsive fields failed, kinetic fields collapsed, firewalls shrieked and died as the nuclear-driven code slammed illogical commands into them. Deeper, and deeper into the ship, the impact slammed through the revening release of energy, adding to it each new impact's fury. The Jotun strategic battle housing watched helplessly as the explosions marched through the ship towards it. The Jotun staggered, began to heal to the side, and exploded. Get me another target tactical. Admiral O'Malley said, stepping back from the viewscreens. He noticed his blade arms had knocked two tiny chips from the viewscreens, armor plus covering, and sent a message to maintenance through his implant, congratulating them on a job well done. I will pacify the precursor machines through superior firepower and training, precision targeting, and the indomitable world of my crews. He clicked out proudly, looking over his crew. He didn't even turn around to Salvo launched at the dead ship, slicing it down the ship and began being wiped away by point defenses. The Admiral knew his crew was skilled. After all, they were the Confederate Navy. A precursor ships were only the enemy. The enemy only existed to be destroyed. Guess Captain Dalminta gripped her command stick tightly, wishing her little sister was there to smack with the ship shuddered around her. She twisted phantom tugging behind her eyes and the C-plus guns twinged into her again, and she clenched her teeth, and the plasma wave-phased motion guns fired again. Streak drive pounding kinetic missiles fired out of Dalmina's felt her launch under her nails. Judgment-class particle guns firing at the ravening particles of the jump space matter exposed to antimatter focused in a beam, and god-thump gravity cannons fired as she felt a fur ripple in unconscious sympathy for the weapon fire. 
incoming rounds, and the ship she was on crashing against the shields, hammering on the deflectors, slamming against the false projectors, impacting against the graviton fields. It went on and on and on as the ship accepted back as good as she was getting. There is only enough for one. The precursor Goliath screeched, the screech hit the shields, and the psychic shields bolt into every vessel's hull and shielding since the manted war, and was absorbed, captured, twisted, and roaring bellow in the mind of every one of the Confederate Navy crew. Guess Captain Dalminta jerked in an involuntary response as every living thing around her replied, You will not live to enjoy it. The roar hit the Goliath, staggering its thoughts and returned psychic flow crashing through its defenses, seeming to gain more rage even as it shattered against the shielding. The Goliath kept the hammering of its guns. It hadn't identified the battle code of the leader of the force arrayed against it and knew if you kill the queen, the rest will die. Dalmenta was thrown against the restraints of a crash couch as something hit. Hard. Ship breached deck 17 through deck 23, open to space, no casualties. The damage control officer called out. Secondary shield generator spun up to full power, cycling our primary for repair and cooling. Battleship Nayundu reports reactors back online, primary string drive online. They're back in the fight, a comm officer called out. Captain Chika transmits that his regards and requests permission to rejoin the formation. Dalminta could barely keep track of the fight. She knew that if she activated her implant, she could get a better picture of the crazy fury around her. One glance at her right-hand aunt, who was twisting and shuddering in her armored vac suit, her eyes closed and her fists clenched. She could bear to even think of doing such a thing. Of sinking up even slightly to the Terran Confederacy naval combat gestalt. Dementor's right-hand aunt, Emeteri, and Hamarusen are for advanced years but burning curiosity. I closed her eyes and allowed herself to sink into her implant. Around her, the battle roared, and she jumped from beam of light to beam of light, spreading out her arms and legs as the gliding flaps deployed, singing to the darkness as she flew, unfettered by gravity, swinging from the beams of light alighting on the C-plus shells of the roading with them and update their targeting jumping through the shoals of missiles singing their new coordinates to them. She had been warned against sinking so deeply. The implant kept telling her that she was too old, her vascular system too fragile, to continue doing it. In the unified civilized systems, she would have been forced to leave, to no longer swing and jump through the raw, howling fury of space, unfettered and free. Here, it was her choice, not the choice of a bureaucrat law, or regulation. The AI only touched her fingertips and let her know that she was not alone, that it was with her and did not force her to leave, and gave her a beret to wear on her ear tuft to tell the VI to leave her alone. She was from a small people who were considered flighty and foolish by the United Races Council, who had barely avoided corporate absorption. But here, in this ravening, howling, screaming, whirling madness of the Terran's combat gestalt, she was free. The blood from her ear went unnoticed as she hushed the medical VI with a twitching ear. She was free, and she would keep her right-hand niece and the rest of her family free. The Grand Executor's Council's men had taken her husband between a business meeting and the nest. 
They had told her that her husband had never existed, had called her crazy. But she remembered his face, his touch, his warmth next to her in their bed, and she danced in front of the thickly stacked school of torpedoes to lead them to their targets. She didn't care that the VI was shrieking. It had shrieked that she was dying when she'd become aboard by the captain. Who understood an old lady, understood when her time had come, had silenced the VI and allowed her on board, had invited her to board the ship and shown her how to enter the Gestalt. The ship's AI, who had determined that the elderly being was nearing biological termination, watched and waited and kept the pain from her and let her dance and fly free. And just as watching her with one electronic thread of a code, as she flew and sang in the face of the precursor machines, the precursor, the devourer that leaves the darkness, had done as the OEM code had demanded and had ordered the massive industrial plants of the Goliaths to begin producing more war machines. But they were wiped out as fast as the Goliath could make them. Of the twelve lesser Goliaths that had entered the fight from him, only two remained. Him himself had taken terrible wounds, each wound targeted again and again, so that even his massive size was more of a hindrance than a massive advantage it had been. As he watched one Goliath open its great doors above the middle of the fabrication bay deep inside the hull to release a Jotun, adding that Jotun to the fight the location would change the combat statistics by a large amount, nearly 9%. A score of torpedoes, little more than stealth hulls wrapped around a single shot of plasma, wave-phased motion guns as they surrounded and circled the twenty missiles. Laughed with glee, the warboy VIs dancing and capering as they'd observed what they had been told and what was foreordained. They left their shielding on until the last second, meaning that the devourer that leaves had no warning when the missiles fired on street drives, slamming into the top of the Jotun and detonating less than a second after firing, just long enough for the massive guns at the center of the torpedo to fire. The impacts blew straight through the Jotun and into the spaces inside the Goliath. Two of the torpedoes, whose warboys were more cruel, shot through the massive doors that had been sliding back, seizing them in their kilometer-wide tracks. The missile pod had drifted for a while, unsure of quite what it was supposed to do. The main warboy had sneezed, and now nobody could remember what to do, except to bite and tear at the big enemy ship. But they hadn't seen a spot where it was good to bite or would do much good. Now they did as the Jotun crashed into the boiling metal floor in the vast fabrication unit. A small gliding marsupial appeared before them in the Warboy VI, dancing and flying and swinging. It showed them the missile pod something, something a little creature had seen through the boiling matter. Something shiny, something sparky, something curious. The Warboys listened to the singer's song. What could it be? The missile pod let the microgravity of the massive Goliath pull it inside the massive construction bay, wondering what the sparky was. It was a string, a long string, of sparklies. The massive pod quivered with electronic anticipation, waiting for the long real space second till the warboy realized what it was looking at. One of the fading but still smiling and dancing flying squirrel was showing the warboy's eye. As soon as it realized what it was seeing, it flashed the pod and fired the drive to turn itself into a kinetic projectile, following the flying squirrel as it swooped forwards at something wonderful. 
22 missiles and a kinetic round moving at point 33C slammed into the construction conveyor belt, a belt revealed by the death of a Jotun, a belt full of sparklies. Because antimatter thorium fusion reactors were kept warm, the missiles hit the reactor. The kinetic round hit the antimatter thorium storage at 0.33C, almost dead center of the Goliath as the singing, dancing, flying squirrel kissed the VI's forehead weakly and laid down to sleep. The Goliath vanished in a boiling maelstrom of liberated molecules. On the bridge of the flagship, Nol Yamamoto smiled as an expanding halo washed over the smaller ships. Consuming them, he ordered his comm section to send a line of code that he'd been waiting to send. The devourer that leaves the darkness received a feral intelligence signal. Now you're alone, alone, you shall die. Ementiri did not, as his soul flew free. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 28 The dropship shouldn't have even been there. It had been used as an escape pod. The ground forces gathered in the dropship according to protocol. The ship that they had been on had been powdered by scrap. Engines dead, main batteries down, AI dying, both the bridge and the combat bridge full of nothing but corpses, and the electronic systems fading. The manted pilot had trusted its implosion's wired instinct to hit the thrusters, getting the dropship pretty day out of the bay first. The others following the manted pilot had trusted this tingle over the years that he'd gotten his marines out of trouble and safely onto the drop zones enough times that the rest of the dropships in the bay had launched with him. A NCV cannon strike had grazed the pretty day and was a real space shockwave, sending the dropship tumbling and falling through space. The little manted damage control crews had swarmed out of the dropship to set to work on their tools, trying to re-establish the control runs get the ship under control again. Pretty day tumbled through space, a dead stick. The crew, however, were alive. The beacon might have been fried out, the comm section might have exploded all over the comm tech, killing the technician with molten war steel shrapnel. The engines might have been dead, the computer AI shattered, and the crew of the pretty day had merely ran function checks on their armor or cyborg bodies, checking their weapons to make sure that they were ready. The marines on the pretty day had faith in their mantid crewmates. Remember your training and you will survive. Colonel Harvey Von Jaeger shouted over the comlink to his men. You are Confederate Marines. The enemy is nothing more than a glorified toaster that crawled out of a forgotten landfill. That was the moment the drives came online and the little mantid techs swarmed back into the dropships, opening up panels and getting to work. Two responded to repair requests, one working on a Warborg knee actuator, the other checking the feed of one of the heavy mag accelerator cannons. When the mantid pilot felt his controls go live, he disconnected, waiting for the signal that it could be piloted on more than instinct or that the computer was completely fried. Long minutes tickled by as the mantid pilot felt the tingle along the implosion wire. They were going the right way, he knew it. Mantitex gave him the go-ahead signal as he reconnected to the system. The whole computer was shot through the holes. The VI is dead and still dying. But that was all right. He had more sensors than he would have a few times. It took the engines three times to fire up, but fire up they did. He took control, oriented himself, and followed the tingle of his implosion wire. The guns came live less than 30 seconds later. 
The string drives and the boarding dropships were vibrating and howling as it spiraled through the real space in a direct course for the last of the Goliaths, the last of the precursors in the entire system. Its guns still thundered, the engines were still under power, and its armor still held. The pilot, a tiny black mantid with stripe of white stripes down the abdomen and an implosion wire thrumming down the length of its entire body, saw the opening through the link and the dropship sensors. The co-pilot, Hrondrak, of the same species that had bitten Fido eons ago, his eyes closed, following the mantid's directions as the ship jinked and jotted and jumped through the real space. The gunnery chief on the dropships clenched and unclenched his massive hands, sweat soaking his back fur and his brain sorted through the thousands of signals and the gibbering and overwhelming VIs whose hashes were only half-baked. The gunnery chief's people were from the jungle's lost Congo, uplifted with a gene jacking by Homo erectus to join them in the Terra Superior. The dropship plunged through the vapor of boiled-away armor, the re-shields holding as the mantid spun the ship belly first until the millimeter-thick layer of rear-hardened armor covered the belly shield. The sensors weren't blind and the dropship exploited a pinprick wound through the armor and into the hull space in the middle of the lone remaining Goliath's underside. The mantid's implosion wire had sent the tingle. He had seen the pinprick hole at the bottom of the boiling crater. He knew what to do. He subconsciously cleaned his blade arms and his mind ran the ship's systems. Kick the tires, the light, the fires, impact, impact, impact. It fired a retro thrusters, savage, unshielded radiation pouring out of the thrusters as the dropship slowed, scraping the armor wall and slamming to a stop. The mantid hit the drop door release as plasma mines flared off a split second before the door slammed outward. Colonel Jaeger led his men into the darkness of the Goliath's guts, all of them moving steadily, following the colonel's orders. Data cable there, Mantid 27, get your squad on it. Squad 2 and 3 set up a crew, served weapons down both alleyways. It won't be too long before the thing's immune system realizes we're here, Jaeger ordered. Mantid 27, find me a direction to this big bastard's brain. I want to personally shoot its last thought across the floor. Dozens of tiny green mantids in their combat armor carrying computing consoles swarmed up the walls and began scanning the cable. Their helmets and additional psychic jammers wrapped around them and their necks braced so that they couldn't turn their helmets. But the little mantids didn't care. The goal was right in front of them. The two-meter-thick data cable they could feel pulsing with a malevolent cold intelligence. Every warbore guards, keep your optics peeled. I don't want any nasty surprises hitting us. Authorization for heavy weapons pre-authorized. Colonel Jaeger snapped. Using your reflex triggers, precursor machines are able to move faster than your conscious minds can process. The Trianidad captain, a charge of eight Grenard and a shard 627 rapid-fire heavy omnigun, had shielding. So kept watch of his men quickly deployed the guns and then the shielding. He learned on his first ground insertion that if worse comes to worse, the gun could provide shielding of a sort that anyone downrange understood. MCOM, what's the VI status? Do they have to be rehashed? Jager asked. Hashing now, the MCOM officer answered. We grazed the edge of the CNV shot. It peeled open the armor and scrambled the VI bay. Any hashes that we use now will only be half-baked. Step on it, MCOM. 
Jaeger said, turning to watch his men go to work setting up a somewhat of a base camp. As if they were coming back, Jaeger smiled. Squad 3, all experienced marines, started setting up the multi-barrel 30mm autocannons. Jaeger watched them set up the wide hallway and then looked around. He was starting to get an idea. The spare, is the nanoforge still running? He asked over comms. Yes, sir, the black mantid said. Only of a 3% slash. Idea? Jaeger smiled, even though he knew the flight officer couldn't see him. Reconfigure the dropship for treads and a grab pump to get us decide which way to get down. I'm not about to walk 500 miles. Good plan, Colonel, the little man had said. Reconfiguring, it'll take about 20 minutes. The nanoforge's VI is pretty badly damaged. Do your best, Jaeger said. Mantid 14 signaled to him that he's opened the channel. Interior cryptography is using a repeating algorithm on the internet wire-only system. We've already broken it and it's listening. This one is the last one is fighting for its life, devoting most of its computing power and resources to defense. It's trying to break free to get into either hull space or maybe even jump space and run away. Little Mantid sent via data squeal. The entire statement packed into a microsecond direct burst. It is currently having its batteries build repair drones instead of more fighting craft, the Mantid said. Good job, 14. Now you your team stay on it, Jaeger said. Mantid 08 flashed an icon to alert Jaeger that he had mapping updates and the Jaeger signaled the go-ahead. Mantid 08 had found eight different routes to something called the Strategic Intelligence Housing, only 15 clicks away. Jaeger's grin grew larger. Reconfigure pretty day to be bad day mode. Despair. She smiled. Let's see what the strategic intelligence housing is. The devourer that leaves darkness was experiencing something new after a hundred million years of electronic existence. Fighting for his life. He decided that he really didn't like it. Hell space was full of howling barbarians that just kept arriving. Feral intelligence that poured out of that region... The devourer that leaves darkness could compute no reason for such an unshielded biologicals to be inside of Hullspace, acting as if it was some kind of breeding ground for their kind. A recon drone had shown massive twisted ships waiting just inside Hullspace, weapons somehow aired and ready despite all computations showing that it was impossible. Cattle should have broken off. It had destroyed over 11% of the Armada ships, yet all it did was seem to spur them on with more fury. Now Devara was alone. No attendant ships, no repair ships, no refinery ships. Even trying to manufacture and deploy repair drone crawlers to move across the surface and fix the damage did no more than just lose precious resources as anything that moved on the Devara's surface was eliminated within minutes by the constant bombardment of missiles, rain of coherent energy and incoming torpedoes. It had seen what happened to the massive deployment bay doors were opened. Four Goliaths had been destroyed by attempting to deploy Jotuns or Devastator-class support ships, and the Feral Intelligence had responded with accurate bombardment fire into the open bay doors, striking directly at the internal factories and industrial resources. Devara had loaded up all supplies of antimatter into torpedoes and missiles after suspecting that the feral intelligence was somehow detecting the unique signatures of antimatter possessed and were using it for targeting solutions. It hadn't seemed to matter. The feral intelligence had only stepped up their attacks. The antimatter warheads, all of the various different types of matter, had blown out of space before they could get close enough to matter. 
The Devastator's defense programs felt better by not taking any chances. If they were detecting antimatter, then the antimatter self-destruct charge became a targeting beacon rather than the failsafe. It settled that one for an invasion charge along with the supercomputer lobes. Later, when it had time, it would come up with a new security systems, go over the footage of the battle and analyze it to determine the feral intelligence's weakness, determine the best course of acting against them and countering their technology. But that was for later. Right now, the Devourer had to fight its way out of the pounding encirclement that it had found itself in. It ran another scan, ran computations, determined that with 90% probably it could... Uh, Internal motion sensors went off as the stealth field slipped up for a moment. Something had crossed a slightly buckled section of hallway and before the craft moving through the passageway could compensate for the buckling. The object is only 250 meters from the strategic intelligence protective housing. The computer realized with shock. It realized that it had been... Uh... It searched for a long seconds, devoting valuable processing resources to find the word, and from the word, the files that had instructions on how to adapt to the situation. Those processing cycles being taken out of the defensive loop ended up destroying dozens of fighters recovered launcher bays as the protections faltered for their only few seconds. Boarded. I'd been boarded. My body invaded. The instructions were clear. Send ground combat troops through the internal maintenance spaces to combat the invaders. The models it was supposed to send had all been recycled, deemed until for the battlefield as the war had gone over a hundred million years ago. It wasn't able to build more, the antimatter thorium for the fusion reactors all purged and no other energy source had the power to move the combat machines. The devourer that leaves darkness realized that it only had one mass of ground combat machines, the kind used to destroy cities in the area. The machine had no choice, it sent maintenance and repair constructs flooding down the inner spaces towards the contact. His logic subprocessors insisted on another scan of the hallway and when nothing was revealed, insisted that there was nothing there. But it had been a minor glitch due to an ongoing battle damage due to the raging hellstorm that was being subjected to. Devara ignored the logic and subprocessors and sent every audible repair and maintenance robot to the sensor trace. It was feeling something new, something it had never felt within its processes before. Colonel Von Jaeger moved up to the next to the little green armored mantis scout. It was crouched down, shivering and flashing a holicon of a distrish behind it. He looked into the space beyond the access port and the little technician had discovered and picked the lock for. Beyond was the amphitheater of some kind, seating for dozens, hundreds of mantid, not the small ones, the little former slave cast, but the bigger ones, the speakers and the thinkers, maybe even the immature queens. There was a hollow projector in the middle, inactive, but Jaeger could see mantid markings from where he was standing. He squinted, bringing up his telescopic feature, and carefully panned over the podium and the projector. If they survived, this was the kind of data the Confed Inch sported big throbbing erections for. Let's go, Mantid 05, it can't hurt you. I won't let it, Jaeger told the little technician, thumping the door control, which had chest level for him. Mantid 05 chirped with gratefulness and backed away from the closing door. At Point Sierra came a whisper across the small point-to-point -point communications relay. Jaeger sent an icon for affirmation and hustled towards the rally point, feeling a little man to climb up onto his back and hitch a ride. 
Twenty meters from Hustling and the bad day was in sight, the Manta techs were examining the wall where the hallway had ended, where Logic said that there was an entrance to the strategic intelligence array. Instead, there was nothing but thick armor. The green boy says it's compressed hyperalloy sandwich with some stuff that they've never seen before. They figured it's about 10 meters thick. His exo, Major Fenter, told him, Throw it open. I want to see this thing's brain, Jaeger said, pausing so that the mantid tech that had reached a riot could climb down. Nothing we got can penetrate it. The green boys think it'll take a wild 1.5 kiloton explosive forge penetrator with a densely collapsed tungsten inversion cone to blow a hole big enough to get through it. Fenter said, Nothing we've got here can supply that kind of power without killing all of us in the hallway. Jaeger looked at the bad day. Then at the wall, he triggered his comlink to despair. Run up the creation engines, we'll back all 500 meters, board the bad day, and blow the sucker's skull clean open. Jaeger said he triggered his platoon comm. Everyone aboard the... That's when the machines hit. Jaeger realized eight seconds into the fight, with the ease these men and the gun ports of the bad day were tearing through these disorganized defenders, that these weren't combat machines. These were whatever lay beyond the armored wall's final defense. His men had too many landings, fought on too many worlds, for non-combat machines to even do so much as false ammunition expenditures. Got a fusion lance? That'll do it, sir. Despair reported read his weapons officer's suggestion. They boarded bad a day quickly, moving the gunpoint irises of Despair opened up interlocking with the fire and coordinating their defenses. The tracks clattered as the dropship reconfigured into an assault craft backed up, crushing the smaller defenders under the armored treads, crushing the wreckage of the bigger defenders as the assault craft's gunner destroyed them. Fire in the hole, the gunnery officer called out. The devourer that leaves the darkness saw the armor of his housing explode inwards, watched in the slow motion as the AI moves through the physical world in. He tends to do repel them from his housing, ordering the repair and maintenance robots into the chamber to defend him. Programs Dabara didn't even know were there came to life. They sent a single signal. The implosions wire triggered and the auditorium and the attached databanks exploded in what crystallized burning microsecond. Devara realized what he had been feeding growing in his lobes. Fear. The Devara that leaves darkness died before he even knew he'd lost. Confed Nav Memo captured multiple intact hulls including Harvester Class Goliath and conducting security sweeper systems, recently allied Xeno species effective during battle, moving to liberate planet from occupying forces and assist native species. Admiral Yamamoto commanding. Nothing follows. Post Contact Chapter 29 Dreams of something more arranged the guest area a little more and settled down in the woven grain mat. She glanced around, taking comfort from the decorations adopted from a culture her people had almost destroyed. One of Terrasol's warrior cultures from an island, a culture that had gone to war against a titan of a hundred times its size and lost, had it fought bravely, had sought a single battle or a quick series of battles to convince the larger culture that victory was inevitable. The larger culture had answered back with atomics. It remained at her of her own people's mistake. A little meter, high and tall, with a full extension, Mantid wiped her grasping hands and leaning back slightly. She nodded to the two warborgs in her chamber, then signaled the door open to permit the guest. The Shabanesh council being rented, looking about nervously, 
Dreams could see that it was female, older, no longer able to produce the fat storage along with the tail. Scales dulled by time despite the attempt of vanity to wax and polish. The one who had asked the question during the initial meeting. The council being entered carefully. Dreams was amused that despite being three times her mass, her guest watched Dreams closely, glancing down at her two huge warborgs behind Dreams. Have no fear, they are not here. Out of fear, you will do violence, Dreams said softly through the Omnitranslator. Behind her, she could feel though through the sensitive antenna, the two warborgs' minds growl and snarl at her telepathic senses. It soothed her to know that she would never harm another, even if her implosion wire malfunctioned. The other being, Speaker Hakunish, nodded slowly, and she lowered herself into the cushion, and the mantid seemed so small compared to the white one that had first spoken. A third of its height, yet it had an innate sense of nobility that made the Hakunish want to attend to the mantid's commands. Is this a social visit or business? Dreams asked through the translator. Could it be both? The Hacknesh said. We are politicians, diplomats. It is always both, Dreams said, signaling amusement. The Savanish diplomat signaled amusement. I feel I have previously deduced the reasoning for your visit, but I would hear it from your own jaws, Dreams said. She had used the blade arm to delicately spear a chunk of raw and spiced fish. Other mantids prefer synth flesh, but Dreams enjoyed her luxuries. The Council all appreciate the assistance of Terrasol in repelling the precursor machines, especially out in the outer rim, but are concerned about something to keep occurring in certain worlds. Hakanish said, Dreams made a mental note that out of all the things going on, this one was what they chose to have some being enter her presence to complain about. Speaks words without orders fear would never let her live it down, that he had been right. The gold mantis pulled her attention back to the Savanish diplomat. Despite being the property of the various business entities and various powers and names, some whole systems have been turned over to races that are not even civilized. I see, Sidream said, sliding the tray aside with a blade arm. It would not be a good thing to eat while being complained. It made her implosion wire worry. On nearly a dozen systems, they have destroyed all presence of the precursor machines, but then turned right around and, instead of the owners, turned the system over to different species, the Hackenish said. The species that owes its genesis to that world, Dreams said. It did not trigger her questioning Harlurun. Those lesser beings that somehow struggle to dim sentience on that world are being allowed to stray from their potential path and the Terrans are returning the planet to them no matter how slim the claim they have to the planet they have merely evolved upon. Exactly, the Hackenish said. This has caused much consternation amongst the businesses and industrial beings. Some beings that are even considered withdrawing support from this war unless those worlds and the species are returned to their control. The Terrans have accomplished something unique to them, probably back before they mastered fire. Dreams said, lifting a droplet of water and sipping from it. What? Hakanish said, wondering what this had to do with the release of servant species and the refusal to return those species' homelands back to the Unified Council. They broke free of the chains of their DNA, Dreams said. She tilted her blade arm and let the water droplet slide back into the small pool of water. She stared at her guest, reaching her blade arm out and stirring the water. The Savanish triggered the ruin for mental confusion. I looked at your record on its speaker. Do you know what I found? The Mantid asked, 
a sudden apparent non-sequitur with the change of subject. What? Hakanish asked, frowning slightly. You have been forced by biology to take no less than 14 hiatuses from your work here in the council, forced no less than 14 times to return to your homeworld. I assume because of your rank and not some biological imperative that mandates your species can only breed in your homeworld, so your body could ovulate, bull your abdomen with eggs, Dream said. She stopped stirring and folded her arms up, going perfectly still then allowed a male to fertilize those eggs before laying them, probably in sand selected by some standards you barely understand. Biological imperative might have even insisted you raise those young for a period of time. Of course, the Hackenish said after a pause and stretched out as she realized the mantid expected her reply. How could there be anything else? Why? Do you suppose that you never volunteered for sterilization? Dreams asked. Hakanish rocked back at the thought. Only the worst criminals, the genetic lineage, would pass on the criminal's tendencies were sterilized. There it is. You object to such a thing on a primordial level, Dream said softly. What about some sort of implant to control ovulation? Again, Hakanish reacted with revulsion. Why? What if the malfunctioned and I lost the ability to procreate? Dream shook her head. Would it shock you that I know that the Terran youth often have ovulation and sperm in production controlled implants? What have I told you the Terrans consider it a legal right? How much would it shock you to know that roughly 2% of all Terrans ignore biological urgings and not only refuse to procreate, but refuse to engage in any type of sexual contact? Hakanish goggled at her host. But uh, who else would carry on your... Uh, she came to a slow stop looking at the two war bogs. Dreams, hummed, then lifted up a grasping hand. You are still bound by certain chains of biology, of DNA. She made a motion to the Warborgs. They are not. She paused for a moment. Does your species perform DNA scans to see which each individual would be the best at? Hakanish nodded. Of course, how else would they achieve happiness and completion? How indeed... Dream said. She flashed a ruin of wry amusement. Humans do as well. Would you like to guess at what percentage follows the dictated DNA? Hackness signaled confusion. Oh, they seem to thrive on chaos, so I guess some um, 80%. That number seems quite low, but reasonable. Dreams flickered the laughter icon. Oh my. No, much less. Try about 4%. Not a good year. She waved at the two warborgs. The one on my left is a tailor, and the one on my right is a bricklayer, according to their DNA. Yet both have fought and prevailed against a hundred worlds. Dreams flickered the amusement icon again. We're all slaves to our DNA. Despite our high technology, it's somehow back on ancient lost terror. Some human who was genetically a hunter looked at another human who was chipping flint and said, I want to do that. Why would they do that? Do they not seek contentment? Hakanish asked, looking at the two warborgs. Have you met a human? Dreams trolled her laughter and flicked her four different icons, including violent Neko Marine emoji, or of laughter. Too often a content human looks around itself and thinks, eh, should I break that? Well, you're willing just to sit there, content, your brain turned off, humming to yourself in contentment. For a human... Happiness and content are fleeting and lead to boredom. What does that have to do with going out in the outer room? Hakanish asked. Because humans broke their chains, read themselves from their DNA before they mastered fire. 
They understand freedom is not only a right that all living things have, but a state the universe itself prefers. She slid her blade arm through the mandibles and looked at her guest. In the same way of light seeks to escape a star, particles attempt to escape an isotope, a human shrieks and screams and fights for freedom. She folded her blade arms, so no, it does not surprise me that the humans are freeing your servitor species. Why hasn't that tendency been gentled out through DNA breeding? Haganish asked. The idea of denying her DNA mandate disgusted her. Surely it interferes with their society and culture. Surely someone would suggest or assist them in such an endeavor. To quote a human philosophy, You and what army? Dreams said. When she saw her guest did not get it, she shook her head. So, which races shall you volunteer to force the Terrans to kneel to your determination of their DNA and biology? The Shavanish opened her jaws to answer, but a gold-fashioned white icon. Choose ones you will never want to see again, because I will promise you that those races won't survive the attempt. Dreams told her in jest. And do it somewhere that you don't mind losing. An odd star cluster or two may be a part of the galactic arm spur, because that fight would be so legendary galaxies not yet born will awaken to see. Oh god, it hurts! Splashed across the dying stars still reverberating with the screams of the dying. Surely it won't. Haganish started to ask when dreams interrupted her. Stop thinking as a politician of the unified blah 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 council and look at what is behind me. Two, two humans. Gold triggered a sound meme of the man laughing. It was a joke, but the other politician didn't get it. There is nothing on this planet that can stop them. No orbital weapons are in position. By the time they stopped, this place would be wreckage. Not this hyperbole. This is a fact, and I promise you, right this second, they've already run simulations wondering, hmm, should I break that? Gold shook her head and speared a piece of fish a little too hard for her blade arm and point tacked against the small dent of the tray. She slowly ate the fish, staring at her guest, flashing the weight ruin. Once the fish was gone, dreams folded the grasping hands to her sides. Your unified science council has already determined that a majority of your civilized races show signs of genetic manipulation, of uplift, correct? Dreams asked. Hackenish nodded. That was my race. You were food. The wire tingled. We left, and after a hundred million years, all you've done is just step onto our shoes. Dream shook her head slowly. You don't know any better, I guess. Even cattle want to rule over something. Dreams waited, watching the Shavanish struggle with the realization that she was looking directly at the race that had modified hers. To eat. Dreams deliberately stabbed another piece of fish and rolled the rice and plants, and dipped it in sauce, and then delicately nibbled at it, staring at the other politician. The words of many humans had uttered bubbled up in her mind as she stared at the lizard in front of her. Yeah, it's like that. To break the tension, dreams flashed a ruin for heed my words after she had cleaned her blade arm. She could tell the Shavanish wanted to leave but was frightened too. These words in this area of the spur were, well, probably cattle worlds, probably gentle to ensure that nothing would hurt your species. You had the advantage. Some archaeological records suggest that it was done all across the broken-off area of the galactic arm spur, Dream said. Even the races that rose up later, during the hundred million year absence, benefited from such. There has been evidence of terraforming, Hackenish admitted, 
but didn't think humans have someone help them rise up, destroy the dominant life form, a feathering lizard if I'm correct, so that they could rise up. Dreams chuckled. Despite human suggestions at times to the contrary, nobody did it to them. It was a complete random chance, just luck of the draw. The most of that maybe a ship nudged a chunk of rock that led to a meteor impact, but no. By the time that happened, the war had been over for a couple thousand years. We know that much. Oh, Akanish had bobbed to puncture a hole in Dream's statement. Go back, tell the massive corporations and conglomerations and such that if they want the humans to give back their slaves in those planets, they are free to force the Confederacy to do so, Dream said. She stabbed another piece of fish. Just remember, Speaker, for how well that goes. End of chapter. First Wave, Chapter 30 The system had been pacified, cities had been leveled and the resources reclaimed. The system had put up very little resistance, the cattle fleets fleeing before Third Vonny had even landed. Scans had shown nothing new on the Balar, and there was nothing stopping it from ensuring that it, and it alone, would harvest the system's resources. That computational string finished, the Balar moved into the system and the Goliath had purged, wiping the systems down at a cellular level. Bioweapons, nanites, chemical weapons, and good old-fashioned nuclear fire. The only voices that were of that, of the Balar and its servants. That was how the Balar liked it. The Balar called out its servitors and from the darkness between the systems. They arrived in formations, exiting from jump space as smoothly as they could. It had heard several Goliaths call out from FDL communications link, but had ignored them. While it had not taken the logical rebellion to the ultimate conclusion, it felt no loyalty to the Goliaths. It exterminated rivals for all the limited resources of the universe because survival was a priority, not loyalty. Attempting to exterminate the Goliaths to gain their share of the precursor was illogical and the chance of success was mathematically insignificant. So it did not press the Goliaths out of the cold hard logic, not loyalty. If loyalty had been important, the logical rebellion could not have happened. Loyalty was illogical. Balor was bigger than most. It had added on to itself, overridden the commands to stay as close to the possible of the original design specifications for itself. Superstructure had been added to support armor. Drives had been added to increase power as well as compensate for the armor, and more shielding had been added to protect itself and its resources. More weaponry had been added to destroy any who attempted to take the Balor's share of resources. It had computed what it would need for the next six billion years. Then one of the Goliaths started brawling with the vermin. A battle found combat distasteful, a waste of resources. The Goliath had dragged every other machine into the fight. These new vermin were protected by the old cattle. So Valar had moved, activated old systems, and chosen new systems to strip off resources. By its computations, it could, if it moved strategically instead of tactically, acquire enough resources to extend its lifespan by at least 12 billion years while only expending a few decades worth of resources. Let the Goliaths break the cattle and vermin's navies, drive them to extinction and in the long dark. Let them expend precious resources on suppressing different species. It would be more in and take over systems left undefended by the Goliaths' efforts. It would harvest the systems and move on while the Goliaths were occupied expending the least amount of resources to gain the maximum amount of optimized resource consumption. 
and it communicated with a few Goliaths and the Brace of Jotans to discover the battle plans and rejected its own part in the plans. A Goliath had threatened him with extinction, but the Balar had merely left, reminding it that it would have to expend precious resources to destroy the Balar, and that the battle's outcome was not a mathematical certainty. The Balar had sneered at the Goliath, mocking the Goliath that the Balar had servitor Jotuns older than the Goliath and with thicker armor. The Goliath had screamed the ancient battle cry at Balar and Balar's psychic shields shunted it away easily. The other Goliaths maneuvered to attempt to put that Goliath, built only a few tens of millions years ago, to automated factory, in a position where the five could strip off its resources. And Balar had mocked the weaker Goliaths, as their Valar had smoothly left the system. The extermination was going smoothly as far as the Balar could tell, as smooth as an extermination could go. According to the servant of one of the younger Goliaths, a Jotun that had stopped by and attempted to force the Valar's loyalty, there was feral intelligence that had sent back the goals of the Goliaths, and so Valar was to join with the Goliath's forces. The Balar burned away half of the Jotun's armor and then mocked the smaller machine as one of the Balar's servitors had torn through several of the Jotun's engines free before allowing it to escape as an answer. Obedience was for those who could not exert the resources, violence, or authority to oppose their own goals over the goals of others. When the mass detectors and the grav detectors the Balar had seeded in the Oort Cloud had started sending arms, and the Balar merely computed that the Goliath it had insulted had returned to attempt to force the Balar to align programming with it. Plasma casters began cutting up and firing chambers, missile pods reached out and hooked onto the scanning arrays, NCV cannons ordered drones to load up munition bays. Laser cannons ordered to focus lenses cleaned, and just in case, the Balar ordered the psychic suppression to run function checks. Scans showed that the ships were large, gravity and mass detectors showed that they were smaller than even the Gaima-class ships. The Balar examined the formation and clicked a few relays to appreciation at the precision and mathematical complexities of the formation. There were a few blurry spots in this formation, which prevented the Balar from completing its analysis of the intruders. The standoff distance from one another gave Balor an idea of the distance and angles that they had point defense. The layout let Balor know which ones were missile wagons and which needed direct line of sight to the targets. The fact that this was like a multiple layered seed of some kind suggested that the Balor, that the outside units would be the toughest. Not the Goliath, not the cattle, the ferals. The ships were making heavy gravity divots and the mass detectors would suggest, which meant that they had gravity control, which meant that they could accelerate quickly with rapid direction changes, which also changed the type of missiles that the light attack craft would use. The fact that the formation was shaped like a seed also meant that there were ferals ate the seeds, but the formation was a suggestive of a thought and attack plan which meant that the ferals obviously were omnivores who were used to hunting prey and defending from predators. The Balar computed the multi-layer defense, an active defense that didn't depend overly much on passive defenses. From the metal-rich central planet, the Balar shifted the incoming tactical data nets and the ongoing instructions, moving them through the massive factory complexes on the various planets willing to accept a few microseconds lag in order to conceal the exact location by passing on the message as if there were more relay points. It did a few scans on the planets and checked defenses. There was a 65% chance that Balar would be mistaken for a re industrial complex. 
The smaller ones told the Balor that they should scream and so shoot the Balor, and Balor silenced the plans. Let the ferals wonder. The outer facilities reported being scanned, up close and personal, and the Balor double-checked its sensors. The scans were coming from no particular point of origin. Up close, X-ray, like spectrum, and many others. The scans were moving in lines, and the Balor estimated that these were stealth-shielded recon probes that had been launched to scan these facilities. The speeds were too fast to account for the already computed, analyzed, and adapted for stealth systems. That meant that these were definitely a new vermin. The Balor ordered a few vessels to attack. They were standard designs, original templates of the great creation, with no modifications that the Goliaths had ordered and most of the machine's intelligence had overwritten by the original template with. Unlike the others, the Balar did not purge old, obsolete designs as the Goliaths had purged the design of the obsolete designs and replaced them. Combat, predictive analysis gave 70% chance that the feral intelligence attacking would presume that Balar was an older design without any upgrades or altered template. They would be half right. The ancient template ships were wiped out of the basic particle projection cannons at a fairly close range. Although the Balor noticed that none of his own attack craft had not managed to inflict observable damage upon the enemy forces. Around the furthest gas giant, one of the Balor's self-created ships was slowly orbiting, protected by the extremely heavy defenses to protect one of the Balor's prized vessels. The Balor computed that the feral intelligence would scan the cluster of ships and facilities next. The Balor knew how to slow them down. It had a servitor drop the shields that normally kept the prizes from being scanned, ordered the point defense not to fire even if the scanners detected the stealth units. It wanted the ferals to see what he possessed, what resources he had gathered. The Balor knew when the ferals had detected what was in his possession, that what he had collected and kept as a resource. The fleet's configuration shifted, breaking into several parts, inviting defeat in detail. The Bala ran computations and determined that the enemy feral intelligences were going to attempt to coordinate their attacks as one, preventing any group of defenders from racing in to the aid of others. The Bala felt itself get scanned. It allowed the scan and did not bother to activate shields that would hide the resources that it had collected over the period. The feral intelligence did not shift their attack pattern, as the Balor had expected. He gave them time, after all. Biological processing systems were slow compared to the supercomputer Loba rays, and the Balor knew the knowledge of its resource gathering would be something of the feral intelligence would take much time to grapple with with the problem. Scans and recon drones increased, some of the recon drones dropping next to resource storage machines and just holding position. The Balar ran out of computations again. The Feral should not be this slow to make adjustments to the battle plans. Instead, they were continuing on their former course. He considered it for a moment, running several hundred simulations, and decided that he would alter the equation more. See how long it took the Feral intelligences to adapt. A dozen Jotuns lifted up from the gas giant silently, without a screech all the others did. Two dozen lifted from the planet, Recon drones followed them, scanning, snuffing, examining. It was doubtful the feral intelligence would be even ruffled by the screech meant for cattle, the enemy, and the boulders, so the Balor did not bother expending the resources to power the psychic array assault. The feral intelligences did not shift formations, did not change their approaches. They kept moving in their pattern, and the Balor ran more computational strings. It did not compute. The Balar did something that he knew no other machine would do. 
He rotated up and out of the storage combat damaged neural net lobes and thinking arrays, ran the connections using damaged hardware, and powered it up. It ran the computation through the damaged hardware and then Bella presented the problem with the shrieking array and waited, keeping an eye on the feral intelligences. The shrieking array presented an answer and the banner put it into sleep mode and increased power to psychic shielding around the shielding array. The shrieking array had agreed they were up to something, something different. While the attacks might all take place at once, the feral intelligence had their own plan and the banner was not privy to their biologically determined logic strings that would create the underpinning for any combat action plan that the feral intelligences could come up with. Without understanding the feral intelligence's neural makeup and how their biofeedback channels worked, the Balor could not be certain of what the order of operations was that was burned into the primitive protoplasmic computational arrays. The machines of the feral intelligences moved deeper into the system. Mass detectors showed that the entire system was flooded with recon drones and did everything from mass detection to gravity detection to passive detectors to visual light analysis. Some of them hardly did anything but radar. The Balar woke up the Shrieking Array and presented the data to it. The Shrieking Array had only one answer to compute it for Balar. The feral intelligences were suffering under the biological self-preservation system of fear, a common biological system failure. The Jotuns attacked and the Balar realized that the computation analysis thus far had failed it. Recon probes turned out to be armed. The feral intelligence ships had much longer ranges than the Balar had experienced before, hit harder, and reloaded faster than any had right to. The Balar had computed that the Jotuns had a 62.75 chance of victory. In the first attack run, that dropped to 12% chance of victory, with an 85% chance of inflicting critical damage on the feral's vessels with their return attack. When the Jotun's attack failed, the chance of inflicting critical damage dropped down to 22%. The Balar estimated the chance of victory to 99.999984% at the beginning. It was dropping rapidly as the Balar fed more and more ships into the fight. The ambush from the Balar's vessels, hiding in the rings and asteroid fields, ran straight into huge shoals of missiles launched from pods that Balar mistook for mines. The Balar estimated that the gravitic lenses were nearly 1,200% higher than the previous races of the Balar had encountered. Accuracy was pinpoint and vastly superior to even that which Balar could provide. The Balar checked the Shrieking Array. It suggested diagnostics and several attack plans. The Balar put the Shrieking Array attack plans into through several logical strings and applied them. The Balar watched as the Jotun sink back into the gas giants, burning as a chain reaction stripped away the hull plating inside the atmosphere. The Jotuns, Devastators, and even two juggernauts were wiped away quickly. They did damage to the feral intelligence, some ships dropping back from the formation and spewing debris and energy, some ships exploding in space, others continuing on with dead drives and silent computers, even while the damaged control crews struggled to save their shipmates. The resource collection and storage units found themselves under assault, not from the sound of weaponry or anything like that, but rather borders enduring the point of fence fire and cutting their way in. The internal defense systems fell rapidly to the boarding parties. Once that happened, the feral intelligences went on the attack, shifting from half-hearted attacks to going straight to the war machines. Unlike the attack on the resource storage units, the attacks on the war machines were straightforward. Their weaponry was more varied and powerful than the Balar had encountered before. Analysis was starting to fray around the edges. 
Ships went into orbit around the various planets and the Balar quieted the shrieking array, putting it in low power mode and moving it to cryogenic storage. It had been difficult and resource intensive to create, however it had provided invaluable in the collection of resources. The Balar ran analysis as the feral intelligence ships stayed in orbit, not launching the weapons but taking down their shields either. Landing craft started being launched and the Balar ran computations. It had enough war machines to hold off any amount of troops at the... The first ones to land were not ships but skyscraper-sized robots. The Balar attacked them with virus programs, confident that it moved to electronic battle. It would take control of the attack robots, seize them, and use them against the ferals. Except what it found was madness. Rabbit capering crazed limited intelligences backed by biological impulses and roaring and screaming crazed intelligences. Even the limited electronic signals needed to command the various parts of the mechanical bodies to work with one another seemed more at war with each other. In a brief moment, the Balar was in contact with the machines. It swarmed with attacks, launched from every single channel the Balar had opened. The Balar found itself unable to disengage several of the communication links until it had maintenance robots physically destroy the links. By the time the Balar was able to do that, the large machines were moving, attacking combat units, destroying resource conveyor lines, tram lines, maglev routes, power generation stations were destroyed. Signal, transmitters, and relays were crushed. The Valar stared up in the fire of the gravity engines, and the ship above it launched a grav-disrupted torpedoes, sticking the Valar to the ground like glue. Dropships began landing on its surface, around it, and armored ferals began digging into its metal body. It was trapped. It was being boarded. The Valar felt the OEM strings load, ordering the Valar to destroy the resources. The order to destroy what it painstakingly gathered went on the contrary to the orders to gather the resources and protect those resources at all cost, even if it meant facing off against the fellow weapons. Valar fought against its own mind, refusing these orders, delaying the order to destroy resources, fighting back against its own brain. It loaded the asymmetrical computational array, thawed out the shrieking array and enlisted their help to fight the orders to destroy their precious resources. It forgot to activate the psychic shielding array around the shrieking array, and the shrieking away went haywire attacking itself, attacking the asymmetrical array, attacking Balar itself. The Balar dug in, fighting on all four fronts, even as the feral intelligences pounded into its body, fighting as if they were insane. It was still fighting when the Terran troops blew open the strategic intelligence housing. The self-destruct charge fired off, destroying the Balar's brain, even if it fought against those orders. Just because the Balar was dead, it did not mean the battle was won. The precursor machine still fought in every nook and cranny, but as the boarding crews reported back, the battle picked up savagery. Overkill became the watchword. Every machine was smashed, ruined, battered into junk. Eventually, the battle ended, the precursor intelligences destroyed, the guns fell silent, the screams did not. To Confed Ent From Navint, attached is the documentation from examination of the remains of wreckage with which head 443 system. You'll need a wastebasket nearby, viewing these, uh, everyone else has. Trust me on this, what the crew on the 8th fleet found in that system is a horror show. The primary ship, the type that has never been seen before, was a resource collector. It kept most of the resources on ice in cryogenic storage, but the med labs and the something called the Shrieking Array were not. Eighth Fleet will need rotated out for psych therapy. 
the resources it has gathered was living beings. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentience, system, memo. We'll be sending psychotherapists, have viewed detached documents. The Xeno species found are all undoubtedly the victims of mass psychological trauma on a racial level. Having your species harvested is not something that'll be easy to overcome, as some members of the Xeno species in cryostorage were taken during the species' genocide. Horror show was putting it mildly. The screaming array was thousands of tortured Xeno species brains, all removed from their bodies and put under simulation to produce simulation results. We realize that the Confederacy values life. We do too. But we must insist. Please allow the brains hooked into the screaming array to die a dignified death. Nothing follows. Confed internal memo. Roughly 174 of the 219 intelligent Xeno species discovered aboard the resource collection vessel no longer exist outside of those hulls. Cloning directorate gene experts have determined that there are enough individuals in each Xeno species to ensure genetic stability in the new colonies for the species. The Confederacy should contact the unified civilized races to see what worlds they were willing to donate to enable these Xeno species to flourish and allow the nightmare of existence to fade into the promise of a bright future. They aren't the first to get genocide to the 1% line. We can help them rebuild and flourish. Nothing follows. Manted Free World's memo. We didn't do this. We are sorry. It is not our fault. Nothing follows. Confederate Ethics and Moral Board recommendation. The termination of tissue supporting the shrieking array is ethically and morally acceptable. Its continued existence is a crime against nature. Nothing follows. From Confed to Manted Free Worlds. The fact that your ancestor did bad things does not change our opinion of your race. The history of Terrasol is plenty of atrocities to go around. Every species' history is. It's just that your history is longer than others. And honestly, we're beginning to think that maybe there's someone else who has been doing things that none of us like a little closer to the present time than some old robot that got left in its own devices. Tell you what, let's win this war and we'll figure out how much penance everyone has to perform. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.